Welcome to episode 103 of the Becoming Human podcast. In this episode, I sit down with Brian Burdo. Brian is a powerful athlete who's been rock climbing and running for many decades. If you sport rock climb anywhere near the Northern Cascades, you'll eventually climb a route set by Brian. He's a prolific rock climber who loves to set first descents, or in other words, find his own way up the rock's face. Brian is responsible for setting a ton of the routes in Mazama, a quaint town on the eastern slopes of the North Cascades. Listening to Brian talk, you can hear the passion in his voice, and it was really inspiring. In Brian's youth, he had little athletic talent, but after tackling a wide range of challenges throughout his life, he's climbing 514 in his 60s. 514 is like a jiu-jitsu black belt in the vertical world. Only a small percentage of people ever reach that level of climbing. Brian is also a biologist and proponent of the carnivore diet. You can pick up Brian's guidebooks at goatsbeardmountainsupplies.com and check out Brian's route, Flyboys and Prime Rib on Goat Wall. Flyboys is an 18-pitch moderate sport route in Mazama, Washington. I had the pleasure of climbing Prime Rib recently, which is on that same wall, but it's 11 pitches. It's like 5'9", so like moderate grade, but... There's only one five nine like crux. Most of it's just really easy climbing, right? And it's beautiful. You get to see like this really lovely like horseshoe valley, and the way that the sun catches the trees. Yeah, it makes for a really great day. But without any further ado, uh, here's Brian. Well, I don't know, but the story goes if you never slow down and you never go. There's a great big world just waiting to be hope But you're still lying around And the days fly by like a cloudy sky And you're glued to the TV, never blinking an eye And the world will keep changing time, passing you by But you're just waiting to die So won't you come outside This beautiful world just waiting for you What's your favorite thing to eat for your first meal of the day? Uh, let's see. Uh, first meal of the day is uh, a lot of the time, I'd say maybe half the time is my only meal mm-hmm. of the day. Oh, really? So, um, that was more so up until maybe the last month or so, but mm-hmm. particularly what, so my background is on diet is that, um, I've been gradually, well, throughout my whole life, I've gone from a 15 year old high carb vegetarian mm-hmm. to now I'm a 62 year old, uh, almost complete carnivore. Wow. And, but it's been this long gradual process of sorting all that out. Mm-hmm. And of the last four years of being, um, a low carb keto, basically, um, that's kind of evolved in, in tandem with, uh, intermittent fasting, mm-hmm. uh, usually no more than 24 hours, but, you know, a lot of times what they call OMAD, which is one meal a day. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that keto combined with <clears throat> intermittent fasting was pretty effective for what I was trying to do. And you do, you're very athletic, right? Yeah, I'm really active every day I'm training. And so, so with keto, like, um, was it like 50 grand? I know it's probably changed day to day, but yeah, I, I would, I would adjust. I was kind of, I, I was under the umbrella at that uh, for quite a while of what I call LCHF, which is low carb, high fat. Mm -hmm. And so it, it allows you a little more leeway, especially if you're super active so that I think the the usual keto 
cut off is 50 grams of um, non-fiber carbs a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would push that either way at various times. But uh, I found with the fasting, the intermittent fasting, I was able to um, kind of use that as a variable to play around with. Mm. And so that I kind of got in the habit of at least eating, if not just once a day, no more than twice a day. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that just gives you a background. Then carnivore, something I kind of introduced about four months ago. And once I did that, I found that, um, for one thing, I could actually train a little harder and recover quicker Mm -hmm. because I'm eating more meat and more fish and eggs, things like that. Um, So with a higher recovery, though, uh, I just felt like twice a day was pretty good Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. For one thing, since I wasn't taking basically any carbs or very even smaller amount of carbs, that I was essentially fasting from a functional standpoint anyway. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I found that I could, whereas I noticed a big difference with when I was taking more carbs with the fasting, with the carnivore, I feel like it's just more of a convenience thing. So mm. sometimes it's convenient to eat twice a day, sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so my to answer your original question, uh, let's say for today, um, I had, I usually start out with some kind of meat, um, I feel like on a relatively empty stomach, uh, I can digest meat, particularly beef, like steak, mm-hmm. really well on an empty stomach because then you have your uh, undiluted um, hydrochloric acid environment. Oh, really? So it breaks it down more? Yeah, because with with meat, uh, you, you, it, it requires a very low pH, um, mm-hmm. which is essentially why we are carnivores because our pH of our stomach when we're healthy is 1.5, which is among the lowest of all vertebrate animals. Like a t- like an omnivore would be more in the range of like three or four or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, so I, by eating on an empty stomach, I have a low pH, and that allows the enzymes, uh, the protease, that breaks down the meat to work most efficiently, and it's also not diluted by other food. Mm. So in other words, if you eat carbs with meat, Mm -hmm. that slows that process down. And that's why people say, well, meat makes me feel heavy. Well, the problem there is they're eating meat with something else, particularly Mm -hmm. carbs, which makes it feel heavy because it's being delayed. Mm -hmm. So like, and this is one of the biggest shocks to me was I could found it. I could eat two steaks, like, you know, two pounds of beef. And then within two hours or sometimes a little less, if, if my schedule's adjusted or whatever, mm-hmm. I could go out for a run, oh, which in, wow. in, in the past I would need four or five, six hours yeah. to even think about a run. And you have like two pounds of beef with you I have just this, one sitting? I have this beef. Yeah. And one, one go. Oh. And yet I could still go out for a run and that, you know, I'd start out slow because the blood yeah, has to adjust something. But I was shocked at like how it did not, negative in this these are easy runs mm-hmm. i wasn't doing a hard workout but in other words the the digestibility was so high that um because in the past when i was more high carb um yeah i would usually try not to eat within four or five hours of a run mm-hmm. and then if i did i would eat almost pure carbs thinking oh it's lighter it'll digest quicker yeah almost like but i still sugar. have stomach problems and so and that we can maybe get into that later about mm-hmm. all the stomach problems i had throughout my life but anyway, so 
so like I said, typically, so today I had um, probably a pound, a pound and a half of steak. I can't remember what kind of cut it was, but um, not super high fat on that. So I, I cooked it in butter uh, with um, some cheese, some mm-hmm. pepper jack cheese yeah. on it, melted over it. And that was the main course. And then <clears throat> I had some mackerel with that. Mm-hmm. I like having omega-3s. I don't always eat grass-fed. Yeah. So I feel like if I don't, if I think it's uh, grain-finished beef, I'll make sure I have usually fish, uh, seafood, to get, yeah, your omega. to get the omega-3s. Mm-hmm. And then uh, so I had some mackerel with that. And then I uh, had a little dessert of... Um, some sour cream with some blueberries and stevia. Ooh, sour yeah. cream, blueberries. Yeah, that's my, delicious, that's my man. ice cream. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So the whole carbs on that is just whatever a handful of berries is. And and it's funny, it used to be like a handful of berries was nothing, mm-hmm. you know, and now it's like, whoa, it's just sugar. I can feel yeah, like. Yeah, oh, yeah. And that's that's the thing that was um, really cool. We'll get on more with like the, in terms of like diet stuff, but like uh, later on the episode, but the experience that I had when I would come away from sugar and even caffeine too, because I would, I drink like, you know, uh, a quad shot like twice a day. Okay. <laughs> Some caffeinated drink with, yeah, four shots of espresso. Oh, okay. um, and how many, how many gra- uh, milligrams of caffeine I is in there? I think it's like 240 in each, okay. on each of the, uh, the drinks. And yep. so I'd have probably about 480 grams of, or milligrams of caffeine a day. Okay. Um, and then when I wouldn't, sometimes I get like hypertent, like shaking, not feeling good when I wouldn't have the caffeine. Right. And it was in my youth and I was just working and it just yep. you know, spending money on that. And it just tastes good. Yeah. But like after a while, if I didn't have coffee, I would just start feeling sleepy. And right. if I had coffee, I was at baseline. And my experience is I'd tone things down, even sweet things, right? Is when, when I would have those experiences, they were like magnified and they were more enjoyable. Uh-huh. Because I wasn't, you know, overly indulgent um, right. with those things. Right. And and it's cool because, like, when, like, kind of what you're saying, if I if I hit, like, a, a 90% cacao chocolate bar, mm. like, that's sweet to me. Yeah. Anything more oh, than that's, yeah. like, way overpowering, right. you know? Right, and, Yeah, you're, it's interesting how your body makes these adjustments all the time. <laughs> and that's where the intermittent fasting is really useful because it, it returns it to, like, a baseline uh, at least whether it's your blood sugar or tolerance for different things and allows you to keep resetting mm-hmm. yourself uh, on a day-to-day basis or, or longer term. And so I, that's something I'm really big on is, is establishing baseline and then working from that mm-hmm. to um, throughout your whole life, whether it's work, play, food, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I had this, this thing I came up with that I call the comfort stat. Mm-hmm. So um, that is something that uh, people that are in the outdoor type of sports will relate to because basically what it is, it's like the thermostat on your home. Mm-hmm. Like if you, you know, crank up that thermostat to 80 degrees, you get used to that and 75 feels chilly, mm-hmm. you know, and then, but if you gradually each day, adjust that down pretty soon 75 is very warm so you're you're Mm. you know going through that process of adjusting Mm -hmm. and for if you're in outdoor type activities and particularly say climbing or spending outside you know time camping or outdoors a lot um the comfort stat kicks in where 
the 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 classic case is going say backpacking for four or five days Mm -hmm. and you have you know you're just carrying whatever you you're you're eating whatever you carry with you 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 know may or may not bathe in a stream but it's all your luxuries are put aside Mm -hmm. and um when you return from that Hmm. uh, you know you step into a warm a hot shower Mm -hmm. it's like it's it's like a orgasmic experience oh, right yeah, it's incredible <laughs> and so that's and that was only four days or mm-hmm. five days and yet you reset your comfort level to a point where sleeping in a bed uh, on clean sheets mm-hmm. and taking a hot shower become like these intense you know uh things that most people just take for granted in fact they might complain oh the water isn't hot enough mm-hmm. or the bed isn't yeah. whatever and so so i, I that's what my learned early on when I was doing say hiking when I was in my teens or whatever mm-hmm. I'm like wow this is really kind of interesting how things that I would take for granted normally became really intense mm-hmm. or, or or whatever and so um so I think that's something that kind of guides a lot of uh the things I do where um I, I make trade-offs in my lifestyle mm-hmm. because uh for one thing I'm by most people's uh, standards of income anyway i'm very poor mm-hmm. like yeah. really like i don't know bottom five percent of the population mm-hmm. or whatever uh and yet i feel like i live a life of luxury in a lot of mm-hmm. ways so in terms of definitely in terms of time mm-hmm. but i don't feel wanting for any physical um needs or anything because i've i've learned what i need mm-hmm. when i need it and when to pull back when to push forward on it mm-hmm. and so like particularly with climbing uh, but also with running, um, it allows me to uh, keep an appreciation level of of things of, of where your comfort zones are mm-hmm. at a level where I, I don't feel like I'm. I, I feel very a sense of gratitude actually of mm-hmm. living in the time I do and the in the place that I do, so that I can do all these things that I enjoy and be comfortable doing it, and I don't I don't set my standards based on other people in Mm -hmm. other words so i think a lot of people maybe most people kind of reference the neighbor or Mm -hmm. the the co-workers or people they're competitive with yeah like oh you know they got a better car or they're you know they're high they're they got a raise and i didn't things Mm -hmm. like that yeah the family looks like they're having so much fun yeah so it's like they're external they're uh, they're externally referencing versus being internally referenced Mm -hmm. where I'm constantly making internal adjustments. And so the thing that goes along kind of with that comfort stat is also, um, rather than, uh, tracking other people for what they're doing with their life. Um, I encourage, especially younger people to learn to track your internal and uh, your personal, um, parameters it might be it could be income but it could also be just your fitness level based on measurements or something but just to have a personal trajectory mm-hmm. so in other words um rather than like oh i'm i'm in this situation where i had this low level job my life sucks you know uh, instead of saying that I'm, i can say well uh, my income right now is still pretty low, but it's better than it was six months ago. Mm-hmm. And you start tracking your trajectory. Now, is that is that going to improve or not? Or do you feel like you're making progress? So that's the things I look for. And so particularly athletically, that's what I use to look take a long-term 
evolutionary view of myself and my mm-hmm. lifestyle rather than trying to dramatically uh, attack or tweak on something and then maybe make an improvement, but then you crash because you can't mm-hmm. sustain that effort or whatever it took to get there. So, Wouldn't so, the, so that's that, that, that trajectory implies a longer, uh, a longer term ref. So like I might even be referencing things I was doing 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, you know, I'm still doing pretty good, you know, based on that, or I've improved in some ways and not in others. So I, I feel like that's, and actually the name of your podcast kind of caught my eye in the sense you're talking about becoming human. Mm-hmm. And to me that implies like an evolutionary type of approach, yeah. like a personal evolution or a biological evolution, overall mm-hmm. evolution. And those are the things that I use. Like I, I try to reference myself, not say to maybe middle-class uh, people living in my city at this in 2019 i might reference more like people throughout history even Mm. or definitely even the paleo history Mm -hmm. like what was their lifestyle like and look at all the things that i have available i mean the classic thing there is like just with the availability of the internet Mm -hmm. i have information available access to information that even the biggest genius of the 19th century couldn't oh, even yeah. fathom. Some of the greatest libraries. We, yeah, we have it's more just like incredible. Online. It's obviously it's overloaded at some mm-hmm. point, but so I feel like kind of extremely fortunate and, and, and grateful that I do have that access, but I'm also mindful to not let that over mm-hmm. overtake everything. Yeah, you, so. you kind of walk that that middle line, yeah. right? Um, and and I think you're completely right because it's like you know you're getting caught in the nowness of things. It's like. That's another point. He said, yeah, these are points I, I, when I was driving out here, I was like, well, there's just things I want to mm-hmm. kind of touch on. Yeah. And one of them is so my background philosophically. Mm-hmm. So I was basically, by the time I was like eight or nine years old, I was raised Catholic. And so I had to go sit in the pews and listen to the preacher, you know, the, oh, wow. the priest and everything. And, you know, it was just what our family did. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point in there, I, you know, I learned about dinosaurs uh, from at school. Oh yeah. So I'm like, Oh, dinosaurs. That's cool. And then, uh, of course, uh, in, in, uh, the mass, they talk about a little bit about the Bible or whatever. And the Bible supposed to had all this, had everything you needed to know, uh, <laughs> on some level. So <laughs> yeah. I, I remember picking up the Bible and I'd flip through, I'm like going through the, each page. I'm like, okay, where's the dinosaurs? Where's the dinosaurs? Where's the dinosaurs? And I got pretty well into it. And yeah. all it was was these begats and these, you know, the soap opera of like mm-hmm. who was fighting who. Yeah, and who was this big old drama, basically. Yeah, drama. Yeah, yeah. And I just got really bored really quick with that. And I wow. think I pretty much decided pretty abruptly <laughs> that this was not my thing. It wasn't yeah. my view of the world. Were you, were you bitter about it? Or were you just like, ah, no, this isn't for me? Yeah, I, I just remember thinking, well, this is kind of a waste of time for me to do this every Sunday. Yeah. And wow. then at some point, my brother got into some behavioral conflict with the... Uh, uh, I think it was one of the nuns or one of the oh, oh pastors or something, and so we basically pulled pulled out of the mm-hmm. the, the whole thing, and so um, at that point I considered myself free, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to just you know Explore. be who I was going to be. be. Curious, really, and like, like I said, I kept following along from the dinosaurs. I went on to like current dinosaurs, which are like birds and reptiles and mm-hmm. things like that. So uh, science became kind of my philosophical uh thread that i you know throughout my life i was always i would always go to science to be either uh, 
get a, a reference point mm-hmm. or to feel better about how things are or get, like philosophically. Oh, is it almost gave you like some, some sort of uh, understanding or structure to put on the world in some Yeah, I, you know, I think people look to religion for some sort of comfort or mm-hmm. reference. And so like, like uh, you know, they want to know that there's an afterlife and so they're not, their life just isn't this pointless thing. Mm-hmm. For me, you know, to me it was comforting enough to know that yeah, even once I'm dead, I get recycled, and then other animals get to live their lives. Wow, yeah. And that con- whatever consciousness is, it's probably there for them, too. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just felt, like, kind of comfortable with that part of it. Yeah. And then at some point, uh, when I got want to get deeper into these things uh, as a teenager, then I started going more towards Eastern philosophy because that's based, granted, using more nature, mm-hmm. and particularly the Tao, and it's nice too because in some fashion it's it, it's a little easier perhaps to be able to hold those two things like the science and the eastern uh, philosophies uh, in tandem although people do it with Catholicism and Christianity too but, yeah because it doesn't say talk about dinosaurs or anything like no. that it's, and it's almost like what I like too is like Buddhism is like they'd even say that you know oh, if you're a Christian no it's okay. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. Like, yeah. And so it's more open and, and oh, less yeah. committing. Well, I think the thing about that I liked about Eastern philosophies was it was based on observation. Mm, and it might be okay. self-observation in terms of meditation, mm-hmm. but it could be observation about the world around you, and particularly in nature. And the Taoism is particularly focused on the na- natural learning from the natural world, the overall uh the overall pattern of things and fitting in with that or working with that. Um, and then also Zen Buddhism, which is, um, focused more, I think on the internal nature Mm -hmm. and, um, things like, um, a little more of an ascetic and, um, simple, simple, simplified approach to life, Mm -hmm. uh, and disciplined approach to life. And, um, and so I felt comfortable uh, with those types of things. So I guess um, a lot of my interest, I, I always felt like that the Tao and Zen both kind of reinforced uh, inclinations I already had. Say, mm. for instance, later on when I got into running, mm-hmm. running is considered kind of an aesthetic, A-S-C, not aesthetic. Yeah, but, yeah. Wait, what's aesthetic? Aesthetic, A-S-C-E-T-I-C, is like kind of removed from the world, I think a little bit Mm. like a monk, you know, Mm -hmm. up in a cave. That's a classic thing Mm -hmm. removed from the world and kind of observing things that way. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's based on some, some amount of deprivation or like denying oneself of like, uh, some worldly pleasures. Right. Yeah. Fasting as a form of asceticism, Mm -hmm. uh, meditation, things like that. I would, uh, just key into is like in my youth, that's, that's about, that's how I got introduced into Eastern um, philosophies was that looking at both of them, one, gave me um, one kind of feeling and more rebellious in nature not for me personally and just not like interested it felt just so confining for who I am Mm -hmm. but then like looking at more like the eastern philosophies and then also just a lot of like uh, you know like Plato Socrates as well um, it just was more conducive to my my character I suppose just the things that I thought about in my own free time my intuitions yeah Mm -hmm. yeah I think that the people that gravitate towards the outdoors and particularly the mountains Mm -hmm. all this will seem in some way comfort comfortable or recognizable Mm. and um and so as i would go into different other tangents um i think those were kind of the the basis the other thing that uh particularly in buddhism that i 
took away was uh, the concept of the middle path, which is um, basically the story of the Buddha. You know, he he went down the ascetic road of deprivation and he starved himself and did all these things, you know, to kind of seek enlightenment that way because he was born a rich prince or something. Mm -hmm. And so he was just trying to understand what it was like to be poor and to be deprived. And then he would go the other way and become fat and overeat and overindulge or whatever. And then at some point he decided that having been to these different extremes, that the middle was the place where he could find stability and Mm -hmm. longevity or whatever would, you know, whatever it is that would be sustainable, I think. Mm -hmm. And so, so I feel like when, when in my life, when I feel like things are, you know, uh, swinging one way or the other, um, and then this I think applies to our current political climate. Yeah, oh, yeah. you know, there's a lot of very contrasting and big mm-hmm. things I, going on. I think it applies to almost uh, most human things. Yes, Dr- humans are are addicted to drama. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh yes. And so to be able to keep an even keel through drama is a, is a is almost like a superpower. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's something I've always had. I think my dad had that a lot. Mm. My mom would have would provide the drama, and my dad would just kind of like keep keep the mm-hmm. ship going yeah, down <laughs> keep it at least try to like keep it from running aground uh-huh. for, yeah so um so i feel like that is something that has worked for me well in terms of um yeah just that middle path and like when in doubt just go back to that center go back to that place in your life where um you can find you know some simplicity but also some comfort in and knowing that yeah there's these extremes and you'll have to go through some of them um or you can play with some of them too mm-hmm. that's yeah. that's another option but I, I think at some point you need to keep returning to that center to feel grounded to feel human mm-hmm. basically that's goes back to the the mm-hmm. title yeah. we were talking about <laughs> and so i think that um that personal evolution and, and, and this is something that can be linear. You can look at linear fashion, but you can also look at it in terms of uh, concentric rings that mm-hmm. you're, you're expanding outwards with things mm-hmm. and then pulling back in and then maybe going in another direction. Mm-hmm. So I think however you want to think about it, that uh, most of the things, the challenges I had, say, past the age of um, 18 or so, um, when I was kind of pushed up against the wall, so to speak, I would tend to go towards those Eastern based Mm -hmm. philosophical things. Western philosophy just didn't do it for me. It was a little bit too, um, too much too. I, in terms of like chakras, it's all Mm -hmm. the upper chakras is like intellectual and wordplay or semantics Mm -hmm. or whatever versus, uh, a more, uh, um, you know gut level or heart level yeah i'm more someone to intuit something more than over rationalize something yeah mm-hmm. and 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 at some point in my life when i got particularly into athletics um being being active not just as its own val uh, uh as a side value but um having action taking action mm-hmm. as a as an athlete as a man as a person um was I consider that critical. So, and that was what I really enjoyed about, I guess about Zen in particular, was it emphasized that you, you don't find enlightenment by just sitting in a corner Mm -hmm. and, and closing your eyes and playing games with your head. You actually do things. So just this, even the simplest things you do in your life can be a form of meditation and can be a form of expression. Mm -hmm. And so, 
uh, I think that helped me a lot when I, you know, went on my life and became more and more active, whether it was athletically or working construction and having to do physical things all day. It, it would change the way that you'd perceive those activities, right? And what kind of value systems you put on them. Yeah. Like, so the classic thing is saying, having to show up to a job that you may not be your passion. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> story of my life. Like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, it's very physical and very demanding, uh, in particular with construction. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I'd have to like, okay, I got to get through these eight hours and mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be some challenges and a hardship. And, and I think that it, it would help me kind of like focus on the parts of it that, um, I could get value from mm-hmm. and then keep that even keel. Um, and then, but then the whole time being mindful that, well, I, if I don't like this, this situation that much, mm-hmm part of my brain would always be thinking, okay, what's, what's the next step? So I don't have to be in showing up to this job or doing this particular thing and evolve out of that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is part of this whole process. Cause I, I was thrown into a lot of different jobs and career situations throughout my life because mm-hmm. a, lo- a lot of it because of health challenges that I ran into later on. Yeah. And so, um, again, those, I, I think a, a lot of the, my life, particularly in my adulthood, was the I had fundamental health challenges that I was dealing with the whole time. Oh wow! Really? And yeah, very some pretty severe ones, but mostly uh, yeah, kind of chronic kind of issues, and um, and so that dealing with those um, and kind of evolving out of some of them, and at least really really taking on a long-term approach mm-hmm. to, um, keep, again, keeping even keel as much as I could the whole time to, uh, bettering, bettering that part of my life as, mm-hmm. as things seem to be going downhill a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So th- that was the, Oh, that would be very challenging not to just completely cling with it and then throw three sheets to the wind. And well, just... and, and just the, just the, um, uncertainty, like mm-hmm. the, the biggest, the biggest challenge that, I think, you know, that I can kind of conveniently, um, uh, look at mm-hmm. in terms of the time frame was, uh, I was vegetarian from age 15 to age 29. Wow. So it's 14 years of, now I was ovo lacto vegetarian, which back in the seventies was roughly the equivalent of vegan nowadays. Oh, okay. Well, and when you were 15, what made you go into, you know, a structured diet? So, yeah, I, you know, I, as I grew up, I was, I was always the kid with the runny nose and I, and and I had like really bad skin when I was a teenager and I just had just physical things that more than the average kid, I think. That's very interesting given where you are at contrast. Well, yeah, I had, I became kind of obsessed with my health at some point Mm -hmm. because, uh, I just, I just felt like why, why doesn't everyone else have to go through this stuff that I was doing? Mm-hmm. And I was on various medications that, along the way. But uh, so I was kind of early, at an early age. I, would read, I remember reading a book about nutrition probably when I was around 10 years old and at least becoming aware of things like vitamins and minerals mm-hmm. and requirements like that. And then, um, <clears throat> and then at some point, I came across a book called Diet for a Small Planet, which uh, came out in the early 70s. And... Um, and it kind of put forth this picture of a, of, of a possibility that you could have a diet that's super healthy and also good for the planet mm. uh, that was vegetarian-based. Um, and it kind of had all these 
elements to it. So at that point, I um, stopped eating meat. I stopped eating fast food. Um, and simultaneously, right about that same time, I became a runner. I be- mm-hmm. uh, joined the cross-country team in high school. Is that your first uh, go at athletics at that point? Pretty much. I tried different sports growing up, you know, soccer, baseball, things like that. And I was kind of okay, but I was never the first kid picked for any team sport. That's <laughs> yeah. for sure. You like any of those too? They were okay, but yeah. I, the politics of team sports just didn't work for me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I like, I was very independent. I like independent sports. And when I got into the running, uh, even though we were, technically I was on a team, mm-hmm. the thing I, I really liked the, the independence part of like you had to provide your own effort. Mm-hmm. But what what was really I think we discussed this earlier. The thing that really grabbed me with running, uh, in the context of this cross country uh, team, was that we had at that point one of the worst teams in our mm-hmm. area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was the worst kid on it pretty much. Mm-hmm. There's a, a kid that was doing it just for wrestling to get in shape for that. But on, in races, I was, um, struggling mm-hmm. to beat a few kids out of like the hundred oh, wow. kids in a race yeah. or so. And my brother was a champion runner. So the coach thought I had, it was all mental. Oh wow. And for, for you, like looking back on it, was there some mental component in the sense that like, were you insecure, or just doubtful or were you just having fun? I was just puzzled uh, because it was the first thing that I'd applied myself, you know, heavily to, you know, when I was training, I was training hard mm-hmm. um, and I failed. Basically, I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't keep up with the other kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and in hindsight, I know the problem was my, he was coaching me as if I was my brother mm-hmm. and we're actually, he's genetically my half brother. So oh, he got yeah. the running gene and I got the ditch yeah. digging gene or whatever. <laughs> ditch dig- so, cause I'm really good at digging ditches, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, anyway, so, uh, he would push me and I would just collapse. I would, I, I would just, my body wouldn't hold up mm-hmm. and I was I, for three months straight. My legs were hurting all the time. Uh, I was fighting off injuries all the time and I wasn't improving my times or places very well, but I kept a mental, I I was still kind of upbeat. I I, I kind of enjoyed the whole sport in general. I just was very puzzled, perplexed why I wasn't improving. And when we stopped at the end of the season, uh, I picked, I went to the library and I opened a book that was on track and field. And it, it was the only book on, had any, component of running to it and and i remember there's a section on running the mile or the two mile or something like that and it said something about if you run between seasons between cross country and uh track season you can improve your fitness and that was a new concept to me the coach never even talked about this stuff. oh really and so i started running every other day i'd run like two or three miles Mm -hmm. and not hard uh and then uh, as I got more fit, so then I was getting my recovery mm. and then I got a little more fit and then I'd start introducing some workouts. Oh, you weren't blowing it all out at that. With the yeah, it was, it was actually in hindsight, it was probably the most brilliant thing I ever did <laughs> in terms of athletically. Cause I was just, I learned to trust my body rather than doing, following some regimented program. Mm-hmm. And within, I say maybe two months or so people, the other kids would see me running around the school and the other guys on the cross country team. And they're like, you're looking pretty fast, Brian, can I run with you? And, oh, wow. and a couple of guys would run and they'd quit cause they just got bored of it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, this one guy who became my best friend, he was actually a sprinter in junior high. He was pretty good at that. But the moment he started training with me, 
he very quickly started leaving me behind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so by the time track season came around, um, I was actually uh, ran, running the mile. That was my kind of chosen event. Mm-hmm. And my big goal was to break five minutes in the mile. Mm-hmm. And I'll, uh, I'll talk in a minute about what that means in terms of times. But um, very quickly, what I found out was that that five minute mile that I, I was trying to do in a race and I, mm-hmm. my first race, I missed by one second breaking five minutes for the mile. Wow. And, and uh, despite horribly running horrible pace and everything, <laughs> but my best friend at that point could run a sub five minute mile in mm-hmm. practice without anyone pushing him. Wow. And so the coach got wind of that. And so he put Phil in the mile and Phil in the, his second meet. So he ran the sprint for 440, the first meet second meet i run the two mile he runs the mile and he the coach just tells him to hang on to the other team's best guy and then sprint at the end so phil's first mile was 436 wow uh, and the school record was like 426 or something oh gosh and so uh he became the mile guy and i became the two mile guy yeah. <laughs> and uh anyway so long story short I I still felt like that was still a huge success because I so basically uh, backtracking a little bit uh, at the point when I was initially running this is my sophomore year of high school so I was 16 and um, uh, when I was on the cross cross country team starting out uh, I would run a six and a half minute mile Mm -hmm. and I never really improved that that whole season Um, so fast forwarding three years of running in which I never finished either track or cross country healthy. I was always either injured or sick by the every season. But at the end of all that, I ran a marathon because some friends have been running them. And uh, so I trained for three months. I actually have all my training for that. <laughs> this is 1975. Really? And I ran the, cool. my first marathon at, and this is three years almost to the week later from that six and a half minute mile. I ran 26 miles at that same pace wow yeah so that was that was a powerful thing that must have felt great well felt great and then also just the realization of like what i because i had had struggles the whole that whole three years and it was you kind of lose track of like where you started from yeah it's almost like when you for like people out there who aren't into athletics when you have a baby right and then like you've once the baby's born you're like oh it's pretty and then like eight months go by and your friends come over like wow it yeah. changed so much you're like oh really <laughs> really you i didn't notice at, that yeah, yeah you look yeah, at yeah. pictures and you're like oh yeah i yeah. see it now yeah because even when i had improved say my two mile i improved from i think like 14 minutes to under just under 10 minutes mm-hmm. but thing is we're still running a 10 minute two mile i was still getting beat by all kinds of guys mm-hmm. so you just feel like you're on kind of this treadmill of success or whatever yeah but then when i did that marathon and, and then i realized oh wow I've, i can do 26 times what i did when i was working my butt off three years ago so that that opened up this big doorway of like wow this, anything can happen right mm-hmm. the, the world's my oyster whatever if you work hard enough yeah but then I, that was phase one. So that was a good lesson for really the rest of my life to be optimistic uh, and overcome, you know, the struggle. Mm-hmm. But then in the next four years uh, of college, I, I, I continued to improve. But in those, so three years to go from six and a half for one mile to tw- 26 of those mm-hmm. consecutive to uh, going from six and a half minute mile at age 18 to uh, six minute miles for for the marathon mm-hmm. at age twenty two, which is still pretty good. Yeah, 
but it's only that's 30 seconds mm. in that per mile and i put a lot of effort into that that's and, a hard one to and so yeah. what i learned about was diminishing returns and and at uh, the end of that four years i was seriously injured mm-hmm. and that was the end of my first competitive career oh really you, my, you pushed yourself to yeah my knees were in bad shape uh I was trying different shoes that were creating problems. And in hindsight, I think my diet was undermining me the whole time. Mm -hmm. And so I just couldn't figure out how to get around it. So I had to back off. It was either surgery Mm -hmm. or back off. And I chose to back off and try other things. Do do you, if you were someone's like kind of getting into the similar thing or wanting to get into like running, right? Like, would you have any advice to them to, in hindsight, looking at your situation or would you, would you almost compare it to that whole middle way thing, right? Where like you're not capable and then you go and you push and then you push too hard. Yeah. And then you have to come all the way well, back see, to the I was, center. I was doing the Buddha thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going, you know, I was like trying one way and then trying the other way and, you know, getting my butt kicked at various <laughs> points along the way. But I still, yeah. So I, in, in, you know, obviously in hindsight I could, probably have avoided all mm-hmm. that with good coaching yeah because i was coaching myself mm-hmm. and the resources for coaching back then for oh, learning wow. were negligible i mean every book that came along i would read it but there wasn't a lot out there mm-hmm. nowadays with the internet you can go on in five minutes get these training programs yeah. that'll lead you from couch to marathon in x number of months or whatever and a bunch of comments too so you can crowdsource yeah, and this is more the, the issue becomes sorting out the information but yeah but back then we had this dearth of information, this, you know, hunger for information. And it was, the running boom was in full swing. So there was more information coming out, but by the time the information was helpful to me, it was too late. My, I was fried. My knees were in bad shape. So, so then I, that actually was the, sil- the cloud with the silver lining was I tried other sports, mm-hmm. particularly skiing and uh, <clears throat> bicycling and uh, climbing. And of those sports, uh, climbing was the one I eventually uh, became more serious about. When you're when you're trying all of those things, like what did that what did that look like? Did you have a degree of uncertainty as you were doing them for a while, or when you just tried climbing, you're like, oh nope, this is my favorite. Thing. Yeah, I think it was more. So I was in my twenties at that point, early twenties, and. So I was really fit aerobically from running mm-hmm. um, to begin with. And I understood something about training. I'd learned a lot about like how to build endurance and, you know, peak for different things. Mm-hmm. So I had, I had some good fundamentals and I was a biologist. So I understood the body pretty well. I was oh, wow. learning a lot. Um, this all was kind of like working together. Um, <clears throat> so as I tried different sports, I would be like, you know, I would try to do some, I would do my diligence on research, like on skiing. I wouldn't just, go throw myself down a hill i would try to at least read about it there was no videos back then you had to just figure it out and watch other people Uh, i wasn't very good at finding people for mentors back then Mm -hmm. it was kind of more just hit or miss um so a lot of times i was doing stuff on my own but um you know i just i was just experimenting around and i think it's a healthy thing in your 20s to try different different things Mm -hmm. like you know say if you're an artist maybe try different media to work in uh, you know, maybe you learned how to um, paint with watercolor. Maybe at a certain point, try sculpting or try oil mm-hmm. painting or, you know, just to branch out. Because in your 20s, you still have a lot of flexibility in your mentality and your wiring and everything and in your lifestyle mm-hmm. to try these things. So I think that's really a good 
thing to focus on in your 20s. Don't get too set on one path as being the be all and end all. Cause I think the a problem I have seen with even especially athletes, I, I consider myself lucky in a way that I wasn't a talented runner mm-hmm. in that uh, I like a scholarship was never on the table for me. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't have to address that. And all my friends that were on scholarship mm-hmm. as athletes, uh, they had a bad experience. You know, they, they would just got chewed up and spat out by the programs. Yeah. And then, uh, and it was so focused and so much hard work so early in their life. I think it just didn't work out. So for my, my approach is more philosophical and I want some sustainable. I want to be healthy mm-hmm. and I was already having a few health issues and obviously with injuries, I, I was doing my best to just try to stay healthy and, so that was the less the takeaway from all that first running career. So as I tried different things, my, my priority was always stay healthy, don't get hurt. So in climbing, that meant I was very conservative. And back then, this is the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, at that point, there was no sport climbing. There was no gyms. There was a UW climbing rock, which is an artificial climbing wall that I would go scramble on. And I wasn't very good at it, and mm-hmm. the, uh, I but I met other climbers there who were uh, mostly more experienced, but most of them just kind of like brushed me off because I had I was not a talented climber. I could do like one, two pull ups maybe. Oh wow! Yeah, I was not very strong, but I really was enthusiastic. So I I would just kind of play around with it at the rock, and then I'd find some other poor guy that maybe had mm-hmm. climbed one or two more times than I have with a rope or something. Mm-hmm. So I kind of stumbled and fumbled through that. Uh, and and read about it, but again, you know, compared to nowadays, the the, the resources to learn were just horrible. Wow! And at the same time, climbing was going through this transition where what we now call trad climbing, which is with gear, mm-hmm. um, it was going from passive nuts uh, being placed in cracks for protection to uh, camming devices, mm-hmm. which. Uh, a, I couldn't afford really. Yeah, I bet then, they're expensive back then. Just yeah, now. and then B, I didn't always trust them after learning. You know, like a good solid nut placement mm-hmm. feels a lot different than a, even a good cam placement. Yeah. So I, I was extremely conservative. So I was stuck at like five nine ten a lead climbing for you know three four years, which back then that got you up a lot of the classic routes. You know, certainly Alpine, and I was mostly focused on the mountaineering side of it. Why was that? Just I just wanted to get up on top of summits and be able to safely do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the classics, I mean, most climbers back then were, you know, 5.8 to 10A was like probably, you know, 90% of the climbers mm. or something like that. Um, I met obviously better climbers along the way, <clears throat> but I just didn't have the ambition mm-hmm. to push myself that way. I, I was more focused on just enjoying the aesthetic of climbing mm-hmm. and like i said my long term i was like well maybe i'll climb everest someday or mckinley or something exactly. like you're enjoying the places that it was taking you to and the adventure yeah. itself but not it was definitely the, the technical adventure. aspects necessarily yeah the technical was fun mm-hmm. but it wasn't like oh i gotta get good at this yeah, see that's kind of yeah. how i am with that's how i'm with uh basically all the things right but yeah, yeah. i'm finding that i enjoy the technical aspects of certain things more like i enjoy the technical aspects of Right, climbing but, more than run. Like I'm not interested in pushing my mile pace. I right, am, but I don't right. obsess about it. But with climbing, right, it's like a oh, this is I'm it's obsessed. A goal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's so. Then that leads to to the point where I did become more focused. Mm-hmm. So um, part of it was uh, finally at you know after kind of a revolving door of climbing partners. I, I well, um, 
actually early on I had a, a client partner who was definitely a lot better than I was and he mm-hmm. was very good with equipment and oh, organizing wow. stuff so I learned a lot about how to that's, climb that's safely that's really good yeah but on the other hand, we didn't get along personally. And Ooh, so, so it was always this double-edged sword of like, okay, you know, I'm going to learn what I can. And in the, but I just didn't enjoy being, hanging out with them. Mm-hmm. And so that at the pretty much the earliest point where I could, felt like I could break away, I did. And then I, I got really lucky because my next partner was pretty exper- experienced more than I was. He was older, mm-hmm. but he was also technically immaculate in his climbing. He was a phenomenal, um, and then the then that was Andy Cairns was his name and I met him at the UW Climbing Rock mm-hmm. and when we started climbing together I was like climbing 10 leading 10A he was leading 10B mm-hmm. and by the time 10 years later where we he moved and parted we parted ways I was leading like 11C on site and he was leading 11D on site so we wow, kind of carried each other yeah. through all that and back then those were grades that meant something. Yeah, that's wild the, to grow with something like that. So anyway, so that was kind of our, and then I picked up other really strong partners. But uh, so that was part of the one part that came into place. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that came into place was I finally did a road trip uh, to Joshua Tree in 1983 in the spring. What did that mean to you guys, or what did that mean to you doing that road trip? Was- well, I, I think what it was, I, I kind of realized that probably, I'd probably been told by better climbers that if you really want to get good at this, you got to do a road trip and spend weeks, just you know, months or whatever uh-huh. to learn the trade. Wow. And I'm going to come in at this too, at this, at this time in your life. And even as you're, you know, you're scrambling at like, um, at the artificial wall in Seattle, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, where and also you're you're kind of experimenting with these different sports and you find that you like climbing um i still did, thought i was gonna be better at skiing really like i was into telemark skiing oh wow and because i was you know i love endurance yeah and strong legs and good technique i've i've always been a technique driven climber too mm-hmm. so i felt like that was the sport that if i was going to push myself and excel that's the one that would be until wow. I got involved in some small avalanche situations oh, and oh, back scary. through things, and I started having doubts about you, that. You're talking about like uh, you prioritized at that time and even before then uh, your health, right? And staying, yeah, and not getting hurt. <laughs> and that's what I talked about earlier about like the efficiencies in, in the um, in that book. That what's that running book again? Born to Run. Yeah, Born to Run. But what I, I'm more alluding to is is I really like shit that as you get older and you do it. Your body doesn't, if you do it strategically and in a healthy way, your body doesn't break down. You get stronger. Whereas, like, right. you know, powerlifting and then you didn't do any yoga, so now you can't, like, turn your head and shit right. like that. It's like, yeah. yeah, that's not something I want to do for the rest of my life. Like, yeah. And, and so how does, um, how, how does... I, I always looked at the long term, the long term thing. So yeah, like like there were sports I looked at, and I go, nope, not going to do that. It's going to be asymmetrical. Like just think about playing tennis. I liked yeah. playing tennis when I was a kid, but at some point I realized if you're hitting with one hand yeah. the whole time, mm-hmm. your body's going to get messed up. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> that's you know, and with climbing in particular, that's a huge element. Uh, that you can, that's sustainable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, the thing though that was floating around back then, this is back when I was in my 20s, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, do all your hard climbing by 30 because after that you're going to get arthritis in yeah, your fingers. See, and, that yeah. was always the thing. There was no good climbers above 30. Wow. Well, partly that was because climbing was so dangerous back then. People mm-hmm. were, I mean, the best, when I started climbing, the 
two best climbers in Washington state had died. Oh shit. In various situations. So it was a dangerous, it was, I would say climbing back then was akin to like almost like base jumping nowadays. Oh really? Okay. It was much more, it was, it's probably, I guess the closest equivalent would be like ice climbing. Mm -hmm. It's pretty dangerous. And that's when they had passive nuts still at that time. Yeah. And so between the the transition on protection Mm -hmm. and people pushing themselves. So, so, that's one of the reasons I didn't push myself in climbing because I saw the top guy, the guys that were better than me, mm-hmm. they were all a little out there mentally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, a lot of drugs going on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. light, up a, light up a spliff and then this, go, go for this, it, man. This is scary. Wait, let me get high. Oh, I don't care anymore. Yeah, it's like, like yeah, it's like, my, you're, 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 you're taught, you're, a lot of your play time was just d- dealing with the, uh, this guy's freaking out on the other end of the rope. Oh my <laughs> like, God. So uh, anyway, so going back to um, this transition. So I'm, uh, so I went, did this road trip because I thought, okay, I, I do want to improve, but yeah. I, I still, I wasn't really ambitious, but I, I know that I had to do the immersion that it would take. Well, do, do you have a, at this time though, do you have a career? Like, is this? Yeah. So the, uh, the, uh, the para, uh, at that point, I was a pretty normal person. I was like, <laughs> I was a biology. I, I did my biology undergrad at UW, mm-hmm. and I actually took. Um, I I was thinking about going to grad school, but we had a really good zoology department, mm-hmm. and I kind of wanted to take advantage of the quality of that environment. That environment before I, because I, I couldn't take uh, do grad work. Uh, I couldn't apply to grad school at UW. I'd ha- mm-hmm. I'd have to leave. So I took about a year, an extra year of uh, graduate level biology there, um, which was really cool. And then uh, along this path, then I decided not to go to grad school and go into teaching, got a teaching certificate, mm-hmm. and became a biology teacher. So this is all taking throughout, throughout my 20s, mm-hmm. basically. So by the time I'm in Joshua Tree, 1983, uh, this is right before I entered the teaching program, mm-hmm. And things are, you know, I'm going to be a teacher and I'll have summers off. I'll be a climber in the summer, whatever. You know, mm-hmm. things are, my life is looking pretty good in terms of, you know, things would be pretty cool. I'll be able to, you know, enjoy my something related to my passion with for biology mm-hmm. and then still have flexibility with the summers and that not that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But and kind of the then the the cogs start clicking together again kind of like they do with the running um i managed to hook up with uh some australian climbers that were basically living in joshua tree at the time and they were getting their welfare checks sent to them (laughs) (laughs) forwarded from australia it's like holy is it wednesday we need to go to the post office we got we got to get our money anyway so really that was the world well they were well back this is the 80s and uh and a lot of these countries were going through recessions uh u.s was having was coming out of ours but uh, so a lot of the British, a lot of people don't understand that at that point in time, particularly the British, got really good at rock climbing. Uh, and a lot of it was driven by the fact that with these recessions, what happens is mm-hmm. everyone's on the dole. And, no <laughs> one, and, and, and there's no questions asked for those kind of... So, oh, shit. So all these um, European and British and Australian climbers were showing up all over the U.S., and just hanging out and being climbing bums and getting really good. So these guys were working on the hardest climbs in jo- the hardest climb in Joshua Tree at that point was 12D. It was called um, uh, was it John Baccarat? I'm trying to remember the name of it. But uh, anyway, it was um, they were 
kind of sieging away on it. And that was like way above anything I could conceive of. I was still a 5'10 climber. And going, I think when I arrived there, I was I had maybe done a 10B on lead. Mm-hmm. But I was nothing special. But I hung out with these guys and I'd boulder with them and I'd top rope stuff and start playing around on 5'11s and even a couple of 12s. And they were, they were giving me tips and kind of encouraging me. And um, I remember at one point I jumped on the, the 12D and I got like third of the way up it wow. to my shock. And I don't know how hard those moves were, but mm-hmm. they were they were excited about it enough that I was like, well, okay, I guess maybe I'll go for it. So uh, then I went over to an 11A called Course and Buggy, which is a super classic uh, Josh Tree climb. And that was my first 511. It was on site pretty you know going from 10b to 11a and basically in one jump almost was pretty significant and it just kind of opened some doors for me in Mm -hmm. terms of what i thought i could do and i think that at that point the hook was sunk in terms of my commitment to climbing to as rock climbing per se so i kind of went from having these vague ideas about you know maybe climbing big mountains to no i think i'll go for the rock climbing part Mm. um at least more as a, an emphasis. So was it just that 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 challenge that that was there, or just how? The- well, again, it, I, what I loved about it was the aesthetics combined with the athletics. So in Joshua in particular, if anyone that's climbed there knows, aesthetics are everything there. I mean, just the the light hitting the walls in oh, the morning really? with the tree these crazy alien looking Joshua trees everywhere. I mean, Whoa. it's like you're literally on another another planet. And in fact, by you know. Yeah, it's 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 really a unique environment, and um, and I've always loved the desert and that just that context, mm. and then also being able to push myself on these climbs, it was just like a galvanizing, powerful personal yeah, experience, yeah. and so I think up until then I was you know I had even climbed in Yosemite and seen you know these huge walls in Yosemite, but something about that trip I think the fact that these guys kind of took me under their wing for a few mm. weeks. And that I, they encouraged me to that maybe I did have some ability um, that it just it, you know, the various components of the, you know, the personal, the, you know, the having the social support all together and the environment all coming together. And so by the time I got back to Seattle, I think, you know, I, I had a different mindset already at that point. And then concurrently with that, that same season, uh, Andy and I were went up to do a classic route on um, in the Enchantments. In the Enchantments, by the way, was where I did my first roped mountain climb on Dragon Tail Peak. Oh, really? In high school. That was 1975. Oh, that must have been a beautiful one. Yeah, wow. I, the Enchantments were just again an amazing yeah, the, environment. Um, enchantments and, for anyone out there too. It's just like this out of this world. Yeah. Place. So it's, that that was kind of always in the back of my mind. So going back to there as a climber and then taking on the classic route on Prussic Peak, which is the Bergner Stanley on the south face. And we went to do that, and we get there, and we look at the route that we, you know, saw described, and like, well, there was a chimney over there, but look at this, this beautiful hand crack, let's do that. And we started doing this alternate route on the way up, 
And until that point, I had no interest in putting out doing first ascents of anything. And I'd always been told by the better climbers, like, well, all the good climbs in Washington have all been done. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, just do the classics and uh, then go yeah. go travel to get better. Um, but by the time we summited, we'd done a mostly a completely new route. Wow. Uh, again, because I was trying to avoid chimneys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't big on the chimney. Really? So I ended up climbing like these run out kind of knobby faces to connect up to a crack. And, mm-hmm. and I'd really love to go back and repeat that particular line because it was, I remember it being really a pretty amazing line for five ten, oh, wow. And, uh, to go back uh, to reference back to the, that climber that I didn't get along with. Mm-hmm. I remember distinctly at some <laughs> point I had climbed with him at castle rock and I top rope to five ten. And I had gotten up it with a few hangs on a top rope and he didn't get up it. Now was the first chink in the armor that I oh. might be able to get as good as him. And I, I remember that stuck in his craw a little bit. And I remember um, on the drive back, I, I remember kind of like getting, you know, uh, um, <laughs> speculative about yeah. what I could do. And I said, well, you know, someday my dream thing would be to like climb a 510 like that in the mountains like on an alpine climb mm-hmm. and he just sh- slam dunked me on that he said uh-huh. you don't know what you're talking about you are on a top rope hanging your butt out there you have no idea what like a 510 on a multi-pitch in the mountains would be like yeah you're just, just he just completely slammed yeah and that was probably that was definitely one of the hooks that engaged me. Cause if you want me to get obsessed with something, just tell me I can't do oh, it or you, shouldn't do it. Yeah. You like that. That's so I just, that cool. just, I just tucked that away <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and I remember, and, and I remember climbing on Presick and not only was it my first five ten in the mountains on a multi-pitch, it was also a first ascent. Wow. Yeah. So like bam, bam, bam. That's powerful. Yeah. just always end with this great partner of mine. So at that point I'd say literally my life, hinged at that point on that climb simply from all the things that came together. So the Joshua tree was the setup to get me into a successful position. And then Prusik was the clincher to mm-hmm. launch me into a different mm-hmm. uh, path entirely as a climber. Cause at that point I was like, wow, if that quality, cause that was the best climb I had done at that point, mm-hmm. even compared to some of the classics I'd done. And that experience was so powerful all I could think about was, well, if if people missed that climb, what else have they been missing? Oh yeah. And so I started looking at stuff the and, first I, ascensionist car- in and you. I started carrying my binoculars every time I went in the mountains and I'd start looking at stuff <laughs> and thinking, huh, wonder if that's been climbed. I wonder if that's been climbed. I get the Becky guide out. Oh, that hasn't been climbed. Da, 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 da. The route setter in you is starting to <laughs> So the, yeah, like I said, it, literally my brain just warped at that point of uh. like yeah, just doing a regular repeat of some established climb just what didn't do it for me anymore. That, and that's that like almost that unique to you or unique to a group of people, right, within this this niche just yeah. strikes. And and again, like I had I all these things coming together. I had the part I had mm-hmm. several partners that were strong and they weren't they would entertain they were willing to go along on these mm-hmm. adventures uh, and I think they found it entertaining they themselves weren't driven in the way that I was to mm-hmm. put up these routes to think about my coming into climbing. It was, um, uh, I'm a very visual thinker and I was thought in terms of like, um, even as a young age, I was obsessed with maps. I would like 
freehand draw like topographic maps when I was in elementary school (laughs) or I would just like do these paintings of mountains and so I was always like really locked into that that three-dimensional or whatever it was to engagement of looking at a a mountain and trying to figure it out Mm -hmm. and figuring out the path and to just repeat someone else's route to me felt like it's the difference between riding a bus or or driving your own yeah you know it's like taking dirt the tour bus when you're somewhere. in the new yeah. new city or you want to go rent your motorcycle yeah, yeah and tour having the, the freedom city. to just like okay i'm gonna I go just, with that i'm all about that in the sense that like when I, I do the organized ultras right okay but like that's just a controlled environment to yep. go do this like outdoor stuff because yep. the outdoor supported yeah, yeah like that's that's it for me man. yeah so that adventure component was key to really make climbing go from just a sport I was doing to a lifestyle type of thing. So that was 83, 84 was, uh, I think fairly quiet or maybe, uh, I'll have to go back and figure out where, what was going on in, in between there. But the big year was 85. That was the year that I had, I was doing my student teaching or no, that was, I guess 86 was my student teaching, but, um, I was in the teaching program and then that summer I went out and literally every weekend I was heading out, I was organizing, getting a partner, uh, heading off to do a first ascent. So I was doing first ascents on a a weekly basis throughout that summer. And some of the routes to this day are considered pretty much all time classics in the Cascades. Like clean break was one of them. That's a, uh, uh, 12 pitch, uh, five ten on, um, uh, up at Washington Pass, mm-hmm. uh, I did the first free ascent of Bear Mountain North Buttress, which was a big ass wow. climb, uh, one of the bigger climbs in the Cascades um, at that point. Um, and so these climbs were were throughout the 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 range. I did did the the full North Ridge of Stewart and a quick turnaround on that. That was kind wow. of a big classic. Mm-hmm. I did. Um, I think we finished up. That was climbing with Andy. I was also climbing with Greg White, who was a strong climber, and another guy, a French guy named Yann Morand. And then Andy and I did an 11 plus, probably 11 C or D, on uh, the south face of uh, Cutthroat Peak. Oh, wow. Uh, and that was probably the hardest technical climb in the rain in the Cascades at that point. Oh, and so in, in terms of like within the community and in, in your progress, uh, or your not progress, but your progression, right, within the, the sport. Um, how how are you how are you thinking about that in those terms? Well, I, that was where I started like thinking about whether people were do, had done or were doing because mm-hmm. one thing when you're putting up first ascents, first thing you have to do is find out who's already done what, mm-hmm. and some of it's published, but some of it wasn't. So I had to start talking to a lot of people and like finding out what's going on with that, and um, so that's that's when I got a little bit competitive. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. like, it's just like there's only so many of these routes, and, and like if you have your eye on something, you want to be the guy, you know? Because to, yeah. to do a second ascent was wasn't the same. So, um, yeah. So I felt like that's the first point where I started like, oh, hold it, you know, that hasn't been done. Okay, I'm gonna go check that out. And to the point where I felt like um, I had I was reaching another level that that little bit of competitiveness to get those first ascents Mm -hmm. drove me to train harder, to climb better and and to um, push myself and then also bring my partners along with me on that. When you're pushing yourself and running and you're getting the injuries, right. And then you're pushing yourself and climbing. Like what are the differences that you notice between those two paths? I'm glad you mentioned that. Okay. So this is the, the, in the overall scheme of things. So 
so that that first running career I had from age uh, 16 to 22. Um, so that my takeaway was that was like big things are possible, but if you get too intense with it, you will get hurt, and then you'll have to give it up, or you'll have you know it'll be heartbreaking on some level. And so, even though I was kind of really accelerating uh, along this pathway, I was still mindful that I needed to do it the right way. I needed to do it sustainably. And so looking in the context of my running versus my climbing career, my running career has been uh, seriously interrupted on two occasions by serious running injuries, the first at 22, the second at 50. And both of those ended my competitive careers at that point. Um, and so, you know, that, and I think a lot of that is just simply because the first years I started running, I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I was just tearing my legs up. And so once you, once you damage yourself biomechanically that way, you, you know, it's just, you, you, you don't have that. You, you're, you're not working with a fresh warranty. Yeah, you dug yourself a hole. That's <laughs> you dug a hole and you just got to be mindful. So with climbing, the way I trained, the way I climbed, I would push myself, but I always had a buffer in there somewhere uh, and was aware of that. So even though, say, I was climbing 5.11s in the mountains, I probably, if I'd been a little more aggressive, I might have been able to climb 5.12 right at that point. Mm. But I felt like I would rather wait another year or two and climb 5.12 once I felt solid in terms of other parts of protection and Mm -hmm. things like that. So I wasn't in a big hurry. I, I felt like I was accelerating. I was improving at just the right rate. And so looking at my climbing career, I've been climbing for 40 years or actually a little over 40 years. Um, and the last 27 of those years, I've been climbing 513. Mm-hmm. And I've never been injured. Wow. In training uh, or, or even in terms of falls and things like that, I've had superficial injuries but and some close calls for sure. But I don't know anyone that has a record. They, just, they, they would compare to that in terms of certainly the, the component of 513 for 27 years is not. Really? I, every other climber I've known that gets to the level where I've been for a while, mm-hmm. you know, they get injured, they, you know, fingers, elbows, yeah. shoulders, things like that. I see it in all, in all the sports that I'm in. It's- yeah, and, I, and part of it's luck, but I think that at some point uh, – um, and I'm tempting fate, of course, to even <laughs> mention that yeah, I'm yeah. doing that. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like the what I learned from the running in terms of the training and you know being cautious with that, what I've learned about movement and about my body and rehab, I, I've um, I've done a, a lot of physical therapy on myself and other people for injuries and in, and when I say injury, I'm talking about an injury that would keep me from climbing for mm-hmm. say a week or two or whatever. Uh, I've definitely had tweaks of all yeah. you know fingers. It, things that I need to take a break for a day or two. And in terms of like chronic injuries, as opposed to acute injuries, it's all about how do you manage those tweaks in the end? If you just like brush them off and then keep at it. Yeah. So I feel like I I developed a program and I, I train very differently from everyone else I know, especially even in people my, at my level. Mm -hmm. So typical like five, three climber comes in the gym. um, Especially if they're younger, they're probably coming in the gym five days a week. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're coming in and they might warm up on a five 
like a 10 D and then they'll start jumping on 11s and then get on a project and, you know, work on 12s or 13s or whatever, or boulder really hard or whatever. So they're doing a lot of intensity. Um, and they're usually a lot younger climbers. That's the other component is that I'm much older. I've always been at least 10 years older than people climbing at my level. So I climbed my first 513. I was 33 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And at that point, the only other, I, there's only, I was probably one of the first 10 climbers in Washington to climb 513. Mm -hmm. And all the other guys were in their twenties for sure. And then I've always been, like I said, at least 10 years older. And in Washington, I, I was the first person over 30, over 40, over 50 to climb 513 and over 60. Um, but so, so I was always aware that I'm the older guy. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> and I'd see the younger guys push themselves, but I'm like, you know, uh, be careful, guy. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're on the thin edge and you may mm-hmm. not realize it right now, but I see what's going on. You know, I could predict injuries for other people <laughs> like yeah, that. Yeah. and part of the thing was i built this huge base of easy climbing so i go in the gym and i'd spend entire sessions of hours on end people can verify this of doing nothing but traversing and probably never doing a move harder than v2 oh really yeah and just yeah. 511 510 just building the tendons the bones mm-hmm. the movement and even though i'm climbing easy i'm doing tricky moves i'm doing movement that i would do on a 512 or a 13 but i'm doing it on easy holds mm. so i'm building the engrams the patterns of movement but doing it safely and you're not doing it in a, in a fatigue Stressful state, state where yeah. yeah where your quality of movement in and of itself would be low and then and that's a huge thing that's really hard for people to grasp is this well climb hard you got to get on hard climbs that's the only way to do it it's like well no nah, there's a better way which mm-hmm. is you get on a hard climb so you know what you're up against mm-hmm. but then back off uh the the highest injury uh window is when you are fatigued Mm -hmm. and you're doing repetitive attempts Mm -hmm. on a move or movement. And so, um, and I learned that from running, you know, Mm -hmm. the injuries come at the end of the workout. You're having the workout of your lifetime and all of a sudden, blam, you know, there goes your hamstring or whatever. And it's because you didn't, you weren't paying attention to how fatigued you really were. Your technique got a little off and bam, you blew something out Mm -hmm. and same thing in climbing. And I, I, you know, one of the things I do in my climbing is I have a three strikes policy on bouldering, mm-hmm. where if I don't get that problem in three attempts, I just walk away. Oh, yeah, almost universally. Cool. Occasionally, yeah. there's types of moves that are more technical that aren't don't have a high risk of injury, mm-hmm. and I might try a few more times. But, but most of the time, it's like it's not worth it for me to risk um, an injury to do to to send a hard boulder problem or something like that Mm -hmm. and same thing with lead too um the grand scheme of things yeah it's always that perspective and and also it keeps me moving along so that i'll go rather than doing like a really hard boulder problem uh by itself or just two two or three um I'm, I'll do five or six problems or a lower level, mm-hmm. but have more variety of movement. Mm-hmm. And particularly as a lead climber, I'm not really a, much of a boulder anyway. Mm-hmm. So as a lead climber, I'd rather have that, that variety and that depth of it, you know, that breadth mm-hmm. of experience. And so I'm, so my, my pyramid of climbing is this huge base of easy climbing with a lot of movement oriented stuff and a lot of traversing. So it's, it's sideways movement and different types of movement mm-hmm. rather than just the climbing straight up and lowering down, which creates imbalances. Oh yeah. So these are all things that, and I'll, I'll put a program out at some point to show people like, mm-hmm. here's what I've been doing anyway. And then, um, and I have like a whole finger strength 
element that I added in the last couple of years that's taken me from the level of maybe, you know, probably being consistently mid 513 shape to being able to climb much harder moves by having stronger fingers. That that was Mm -hmm. my finger strength. Raw strength was always my weak link. Mm. And so I just focused on that. And I did again, built that up very safely and systematically. So anyway, that, so, so your body is extremely logical. It has very, a system that's very, um, responsive to a, a, you know, a patient, careful approach you listen to your body you make these you have your goals but you you know you you're realistic in how you approach them and so my running career i showed the mistakes you can make by being too aggressive or too impulsive and then carried those lessons over to climbing so that i could be more conservative in some ways but i could also be um have push my limits because yeah, it's very much the middle way in that sense right very you much, have yeah. some people i'm not that person for the most part where it's like some people that they don't really you know push themselves that much at all and uh-huh. they're always within their own comfort zone right i'm right. not really familiar with that because i usually go out with whether it's like drugs and partying <laughs> or, or like sports you know or art or anything like that i'm just right out the gate like when i was younger i'm like oh, i'll take all the drugs and i overdose right. so it's right. like oh, you don't do that no it's bad like, oh that's the deep end yeah. i'm jumping in there first exactly and this, i even did that with ultra running i'm like as with climbing i'm like i'm not gonna do that because like i'd get into ultras and it's like i do a lot of the unsupported stuff all the way to marathon and then 50k and i'm like I don't want to pay for all these supported fucking marathons. <laughs> and I'm like, let me just do 50 milers. And then like, Oh, for this, I run before I do the 50 miler. It's like uh 36 miles. I'm like, Oh, 50 miles is hard. I'm imagining a lot of, uh, situations of Will stumbling back to the car two hours after dark yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and going oh shit man yeah. I, that was a close one <laughs> yeah, my fucking legs locking out on me and stuff yeah, just because yeah. fatigue set in it's, no yeah, yeah and, and um, so anyway yeah so I think the the, the these things kind of coming you know in, in 85 that all kind of came together had this very powerful season that way and of course felt like Superman, I'm like, this is gonna keep going, man. Mm-hmm. Let's keep this party rolling. I'm gonna be like top of the you know, king of the hill here pretty soon. Well, life has another agenda, uh, yeah. and uh, so I picked up a book at that point. So I was already vegetarian mm-hmm. and I was eating a you know, high carb diet, but then this book came out called Eat to Win, which I now would revise Eat to Wane <laughs> because it took the vegetarian diet to another level of like, you know, hundreds of car- grams of carbs a day. So basically, but it was all whole grain stuff. So so I had to ditch sugar, which was no big deal because the trade-off is you got to eat endless amounts of grain. Oh, yeah. And I love granola and I love fruit and I love all this stuff. So I started pounding the, um, and I think I really cut back on animal stuff at that point. So I was eating more like tofu, soy type stuff, mm. nuts. Closer to more vegan. Closer to vegan yeah. for sure. And uh, of course, pushing my body while I'm training, climbing hard. Uh, I was running a bit, but not a lot. But so anyway, so this whole thing was uh, came along and within, and I, Threw myself in the gym. I'm like, I'm gonna approach my my climbing training like I used to with marathoning, mm-hmm. and just put in huge volume, and get to another level that way. And combining that with that diet, just 
blew me out completely. In fact, by within six months, I had all these strange injuries. Um, I had to take the only time I've ever taken any kind of compensation. I took workman's comp Mm -hmm. for a back injury, but I had my, my body. I literally, every joint in my body was hurting, falling apart at the seams. Um, and it, I got to the point where I was basically bedridden. I couldn't even get, I had chronic fatigue, couldn't get out of bed. I was broke. I, you know, I couldn't work. I was, I, I got through the teaching program barely. I did, uh, you know, a year of student teaching did, did, and coaching. How are you, how are your feelings toward like teaching and, and that part of your life going through all the stuff with climbing? Like, yeah. I, well, I felt like, you know, there's still, that was still where I was going to go with things because I could, you know, climb in the summer. But this this threw me sideways. Uh, I struggled just to get through the teaching part, Whoa. and the training completely was out of the question. I couldn't even swim in the pool without getting hurt, and literally, like, I remember I got sciatica that was shooting down my legs just walking down the street. As someone who's athletic, that is very alarming. To, for oh, it was shocking. Just... It was it was literally going from the peak, you know, of my life uh, in terms of fitness and everything else in my late twenties to, like I said, being a basket case. And going and going through, I spent a lot of time in the um, medical library at the UW trying to go through research, trying to figure out like, because I uh, I go to a doctor and they'd be like, well, let's focus on this elbow injury, you know, and they'd like, okay, rehab for the elbow, and they'd give me all these uh, you know NSAIDs, which are the anti-inflammatories, mm-hmm. and little I know that's destroying my gut, yeah, while I'm t- taking all these carbs, and then trying to rehab this elbow while the rest of my body is also falling apart. So it was just like forest for the trees kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I was convinced there was something system, systemic mm-hmm. going on and finally found a paper by a guy that was talking about a more systemic approach. And he was a, a doctor at the UW. And so I was kind of like, that was kind of my last straw to grasp for. And I remember going to him and, um, and expecting like, okay, this guy, like he'll know what's going on. And I remember, uh, I did the physical and I took my shirt off and stuff. And you know, I'm like 8% body fat mm-hmm. looked super athletic and healthy. And he, I, th- I think he just looked at me and like, he's like, Oh, this guy's just a head case or something. He just uh-huh. couldn't do it. He just gave me a physical and handed me a oh, script shit. for anti-inflammatories. Just brushed me off just basically. Off, yeah. So at that point I kind of went, an alternative route and I actually went to a naturopath and he spent like an hour almost going through my whole thing and um, it, at, at the at the very least anyway he did a whole series of blood tests and it mm-hmm. turns out that um, I, he did a panel for arth- arthritic type situations uh, or um, autoimmune type things mm-hmm. and there was like I think there was like four things on the panel and like Three of them were not treatable, but one was. I had the one that was. Oh, that's good. So he treated me with uh, antibiotics for this uh, uh, strep infection. Uh So my my body was just all kind of overreacting to a strep infection. Whoa! And that and that at least put a damper on the aches and pain. At least getting new injuries, but I still had the old ones. And the diet thing was still. He was vegetarian too. I remember, and so. The diet thing, he was speculating that it was Giardia at first. And I got treated for that, and that kind of helped, but then it came back. And then he thought it might be a Candida infection. Or actually, I don't know if he didn't have that. I, I came across that somewhere else. 
So the candida thing was interesting because that was my first exposure to dietary change mm-hmm. because I found a book on this uh, over the yeast overgrowth in your gut. Uh, yeah, would, yeah. So the, the microbiome. Yeah. Stuff. Wow, really? Which back then, this was all very nebulous stuff. Yeah. But the diet to treat that was what they called the caveman diet, which was just meat and vegetables and no carbs. And this is like in 1986 or seven. Wow. People did not know about this. Stuff. This was like really out there. And I remember, well, I'm vegetarian. I'm going to try this caveman diet with no carbs, but no meat. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, so I was eating nuts and salads and lots of nuts. Oh my God. And in oh. hindsight, <laughs> it's like the most atrocious thing because I know now that the all that stuff was just destroying my gut. Yeah. So anyway, that so I would feel kind of better, and then I'd feel like some things would get better, but then other things would get worse, and it was just a nightmare. So I kind of had to pull the plug on that, and then I think the upshot of that was I finally started eating animal stuff. Like mm-hmm. back then, uh, like eggs had been part of my diet a little bit throughout, but people were so afraid of cholesterol. Yeah. That they were all freaked out about. So if I did have eggs, it'd be like two eggs, you know, mm. and, and that's like twice a week or something like that. But finally I was like, okay, I eat meat again. And that kind of got me back on my feet, but I was still like gun shy on the meat. Mm-hmm. Cause again, yeah. meat's bad for you, you know, saturated fat, whatever. Yeah. And, and did you have ethical dilemma on the meat? See that, uh, that was one thing is to me, the ethics of it were, well, that was kind of like a, a icing on the cake kind of thing where, mm-hmm. you know, I loved animals. So it's nice if I didn't have to kill an animal to mm-hmm. eat, to live, but it was pretty clear. My body was telling me I needed animal products. Yeah. And, and to me, the bottom line was my health. Mm-hmm. So I stuck with that. So I, I kind of, I split, I kind of dealt a, a compromise where, yeah. well, I won't eat a lot of meat in, and I would actually avoid red meat a lot. And so I'd be the classic, you know, uh, uh, skinless turkey or chicken, chicken breast, breast and yeah. all that crap. So it was all low fat, high carb, um, moderate protein, probably actually low protein by my current standards. So anyway, so that kind of carried me through my thirties into my forties. And so I, I gradually proved I took lots of supplements and all this stuff. Um, but at least I was able to kind of get back to where I could run again. And my climbing came back and actually 86, I missed an entire year of climbing 87. I started getting back into it and 88 was actually a huge year. I got, wow. I was amazed at like how strong I was able to come bounce back really? from being bedridden to climbing at my hardest. How are your emotions regarding climbing um, from when you're bedridden to at your transition back? Yeah. So in 86, the year I couldn't climb, I could, the most thing I could do is I would drive out to the mountains uh-huh. and just like look at Mount Index and binoculars. I couldn't even hike. So I would just look at the mountains and oh. just t- use that as my, mo- my, my one thread of motivation mm-hmm. to carry me through this, uh, and I remember distinctly thinking to myself, if I could even climb five nine again, and that's a hard, that's all I can ever do the rest of my life, I will be the happiest person on the planet. Wow, so you're stoked and determined in, in terms of like you know wanting to get back into the yeah. Climbing. I was realistic that I couldn't do that now, mm-hmm. but I that was it, it's kind of like the the classic kind of thing where 
it's almost like it's like a dramatic movie of some sort like <laughs> like the guy who you know he loses his love of his mm-hmm. life yeah and and he'll he'll wait for her forever or whatever uh-huh. you know that kind of thing well, and i was kind of i would do i would crawl over hot coals to get back to being able to climb but, but that that's the narrative though right like that's the narrative that you In can that almost situation. see within most people's context within the, the yeah and, life, and, right? and i didn't know i didn't try to get too projecting about where I could go mm-hmm. and, and to get back to where I was in 88 was almost kind of a miracle for me in mm-hmm. that sense. And, and I'm, I'm kind of surprised actually in hindsight that I didn't really make a connection with the animal, mm-hmm. uh, the eating the meat and eggs and stuff again, like how much a difference that did make. Yeah. Cause that sounds like that's what turned it around mm-hmm. in hindsight. But you know, cause I was doing all these other things. I was doing all this kind of learning like trigger point massage. I was doing all these other things. So it was easy to say, well, it's the massage that's doing it mm-hmm. or it's this or that or the other thing. But, um, anyway, so at least I got back on my feet that way and started my running career again uh, so that by the early 90s, I was um, getting aerobically fit. Mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of cross-training, bike and r- machines and things like that. Are you like uh, lifting as well? Or uh, not lifting that cardio? much oh, at that okay. point. But um, but the main thing was that my climbing was still was really it's still improving. Mm-hmm. And I was also transitioning because I was alpine focused in the 80s. And right around 90, I started transitioning to sport climbing. But what made that transition? Uh, just finally trying it out. I, I Before before like 89 or so, I was just like, well, that looks like kind of a stupid sport. Yeah, because that was actually <laughs> just like coming up, right? As it was a, just coming up. Yeah. I go down to Smith. I see these crazy routes they're doing. I'm like, on the one hand, I'm like, I'll never be able to do that. Mm-hmm. It's a blank piece of rock. And they're, oh. but in the other hand, like the bolts were like, what's with these bolts? How do they get them in there and all this stuff? Because I was just doing everything ground up on mm-hmm. gear. And so I didn't give it a lot of thought. And then at some point I, I did go to Smith and I got on some climbs that were pretty, a little motivating. And so I thought, well, you know, we've got rock like this up here. Mm-hmm. I've seen it. So I went out to remember, particularly rattlesnake ledge at, uh, out in North Bend and rappelled down on very similar rock to Smith and started climbing there and putting up some spore climbs there. And I'm like, Hey, this is kind of cool. I can clean this off. I can put the bolts where I want them, mm. you know? And like, okay, this is a nice little side gig here. And so I, there was a transition there and I actually was developing some stuff at index. And so my first five twelve was actually a first ascent. So all, wow. all of my climbing up till, 512 were all on granite mm-hmm. and all on site on trad gear. Yeah. And then at the point when I got in the 512, I actually that particular climb was a mixed gear and sport. <laughs> and it was uh, one I had to work on for a while and clean it and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, and even by index standards, I think it's still rated 12A, which means wow. it was probably like solid 512. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, index so, standards for people out there, it, too. It's, yeah, it's, it was brutal. But, it's just stout grades. But from that point on, then my career really starts skewing towards sport climbing and on other types of rock, not mm-hmm. granite. Because I started realizing that for the way that I like to train and climb, the steeper the better, basically. Really? Yeah, I found, because my climbing style is movement-oriented mm-hmm. rather than strength-oriented and mm-hmm. more um, <clears throat> just, yeah, the steep climbing, especially when I can place the bolts where I want them, mm-hmm. yeah. it's safer. Mm-hmm. So climb, uh, sport climbing is the only outdoor sport 
that the higher you go up the, the scale, mm-hmm. the safer it gets. Because it gets steeper, right? Yeah. If I clip the uh, third clip on a mm-hmm. 13 project, I'm not getting hurt unless the player screws up. So that's the thing that I've come across where it's like I look at like five, six stuff and I'm like, there's hazards everywhere. Exactly. I'm so afraid to fall. Exactly. And then I'll do like, you know, something that's challenging, like it's nice and steep. It's like, oh, yeah, this is, I'll take a whipper on this. Like, Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and I've, I remember people would come up. I either do, I was teaching classes at the gym and stuff, mm-hmm. and people would say, "Well, wh- I'm having trouble with my lead. Can you help me with this?" And I'm saying, "Okay, well, well, what are you what are you leading? What are you trying to climb?" Oh, 10A, 10B. And I'm like, "Well," and, and their issue was they're afraid to fall. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "Well, don't fall on 10A. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not falling on 10A. Yeah, you break your ankles on most of those, mm-hmm. you know." And they're like, "Oh, really?" And I'm like, "Yeah, your goal as a sport climber." And a little bit as a track climber is as safely and efficiently as possible get to mid five eleven because that's the magic point where the bolts get closer together, mm-hmm. the climbs get cleaner and steeper, and you can start taking falls, you know, fairly routinely, mm-hmm. or at least not have to freak out about it, and and ideally get to five twelve, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever it takes in terms of training, because once you're on twelves, it's so much safer. Oh, really? Twelve A 12A is so much safer than uh, even eleven A. No usually, way. What? Typically, yeah. Wow, and it's just because it's steeper, less steeper. Uh, again, better bolted. A lot of the elevens that were bolted, say at Smith, have huge runouts on the easier climbing. Is that just because the person who's laying the route usually is like, oh, well, you know, more adventure? Yeah. Well, most uh, sport areas were developed by five twelve or harder climbers, mm-hmm. and to them, like five ten, that's nothing. So mm-hmm. they would just put runouts or whatever or they just wouldn't even bolt it yeah um and so especially the older climbing areas like smith those 10s and 11s would be more or 10s for sure Mm -hmm. and definitely the easier ones would be more uh run out um and that didn't change uh for quite a while and i honestly i think i'm one of the first in the country actually to bolt Mm -hmm. even five eights or five sevens at the same spacing and safety as five twelves. And is that just for the you know, the new people coming into it at these grades? Yeah, and again I was teaching classes and and people were coming to me like, Oh, you know, what are you trying to lead? And they'd be like, Well, I'm trying to do this climb you know, barbecue the Pope at Smith. I'm like, Well, mm-hmm. yeah, don't fall on that yeah. sucker, man. You're gonna ground, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh so I was like, Well, okay, and I'm simultaneously developing North Bend and some other areas. And I'm like, well I'll put up some you know, some safe climbs for my clients or whoever. Mm-hmm. And I did a few of those, and bam, they would just get swamped, you know? Oh, wow. Because, yeah, they're the only safe five-eighths in the country, mm-hmm. practically, you know? <laughs> and so, and and uh, when I would bolt a 512, the other guys would do it, like the 12 climbers are like, oh, yeah, that's an all right route. Yeah, that third clip is kind of not very good, but, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I get kind of like this. Oh, I would yeah. never get like, thanks, you know? Mm-hmm. Thanks, for some dude. backhanded they kind of They would assume comment. I'm, yeah, they assume I'm doing it for my own ego or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then, and, and I might've been on some of the hard routes, but 512 I wasn't, but anyway, so, um, Whereas on the, you know, I bolt a 5.9 and safe. People like, oh, thanks so much. That's my first 5.9 lead or whatever. Oh, yeah. And that just that that positive energy coming back from that and then seeing people doing the first lead or whatever, that was just super motivating. And that just snowballed to the point where um, 
and I and it was kind of going against the grain. I, mm-hmm. I I didn't like the kind of macho attitude I was seeing in a lot mm-hmm. of these other areas. And I had the license because I was the first guy getting into these crags, mm-hmm. North Bend, Mazama, wherever. I could do it however I wanted. Yeah, you can you set know? the ethic. Almost. Yeah, I could set the ethic. I could set like you know I didn't have to like step on other people's toes. And so that's where exit 38 came from 32 Mazama, whatever. Whoa, really? Yeah. The, wow. In that whole con in that whole. Yeah. Cause I noticed with Mazama, like, cause I'd start climbing over there. Yeah. All I just see your name throughout. And I'm like, wow, I've, that's, you're very consistent with, with the route set. And you set basically most of the routes to my knowledge anyways, in that area. Well, that area like, yeah. Pretty much had to myself, uh, North Bend, um, I, I was developing there with a guy named Leland Wyndham mm-hmm. who agreed with me on all the aspects of cleaning routes and Ooh, that's a cool relationship. And, and yeah. And he, he was kind of an apprentice initially and he just took off with it. Wow, yeah. And so he would do safe routes as well. And so you, so having him in particular as a, so like what, what Andy was to support my early Alpine career and then Greg White, um, that's what Leland was in the nineties when I was doing the sport climbing to, wow. you know, just like, and typically what I would do, I'd find the crag or he'd find a crag, but usually it was me because mm-hmm. I'm always just constantly digging around. You're, yeah, you really, you really. And uh, so I'd get there and I'd do all, I'd bolt all the like sevens, eights, nines and tens. Mm-hmm. And he'd do the elevens because that's where he was most climbing mm-hmm. and most interested in. He'd do easier stuff too, but... But my thing was like, I'll develop the easy stuff and then use that to sell guidebooks because I had to end up writing the guidebook. Mm. And the easy routes were what sold the guidebooks because yeah. 512 climbers don't buy guidebooks. Mm-hmm. And this is even before, you know, Mountain Project. Oh, wow. So um, so it evolved in kind of this interesting thing where, uh, particularly with Exit 38, <clears throat> I was kind of living off the guidebooks, putting up easy routes. So it was kind of my job. Is that, or is, are you still doing biology um, or no, teaching? No, that, so that morphed, uh, that's uh, because of that health issues I had. I, I, I missed a couple of years of my teaching um, situation. So I started working construction again. That's how I got through college and just used that to pay the bills. And then at some point was working in the climbing gym for, you know, off and on for like 10 years. And so, yeah, and then selling guidebooks. So I just scrapping around, you know, for yeah. bucks that way. And I was pretty much focused on route development as my job, my career, basically. Well, it just seems like at some point you're like, obviously life kind of presents it to you, which it seems like it's a lot of people, it's like strategy and then, or when luck and opportunity meet. Exactly. Right? And, and climbing this whole time, it's just on this gradual mm-hmm. uh, trajectory of, of more and more people getting into it, more gyms opening up. Because the first gym was <clears throat> Vertical World, which has sponsored me for mm-hmm. <laughs> quite a long time by the longest sponsorship in Washington history <laughs> and um, in terms of at least membership and then um, they started in the late 80s and then um, uh, you know kept opening gyms and other gyms would open up and and now of course we're hitting a, a whole nother level of gyms and yeah. popularity but as a, as the sport grew I was able to kind of justify more effort, more time, more expense to make it work. And, and it just, and it was my, it was my craft, my art, mm-hmm. my passion to do these things. Well, that's as like, as I hear it from you is, you know, even when you go through that health thing and you come out on the other end, it's just like, it's almost like it sounds more of a natural progression for some people. It's very intentional. Like this is what I'm doing with my life. Right. But it's like, it starts eclipsing and taking over like, 
your life. And it's a beautiful thing because I I relate more to the individual who who perhaps would like uh, toss all their creature comforts away so that they can spend a lot of time doing these things that they cherish. Because I do, I I personally get uh, the heebie-jeebies, for lack of a better word. When someone's like, I got this career, and I, I really like this, you know, like, what this career can do for me. Right. Like, some people like it, but I'm saying, can do for me, not the actual career itself. Right. It's a means to an end, and then I can kind of weekend warrior it. But yeah, then I see they have someone, like a whole plan of like, I'm going to retire at this age, I'm going to have this much money in the bank, and all that kind of thing, which is putting the cart before the horse in my estimation yes and 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 what yeah you that's a good point where you're hitting uh, everything i'm doing as a coach an athlete developer whatever it's a, to me what i consider an organic process where mm-hmm. things are kind of coming to me and growing and so i'm nurturing things as they go along mm-hmm. rather than forcing them as much as possible yeah i mean at some point yeah you have to take action you have mm-hmm. to go up and pull rocks off the cliff and yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. drill holes in the rock mm-hmm. that's aggressive in and on some level but um, and and to have a vision of where you want to go with mm-hmm. it, but the actual um, adjustments as I'm going along is much more of a like, well, here's these opportunities. I'm going to select from that mm-hmm. and see where it goes, and then see, you know, kind of where it's going to take me and other people. Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 more of that again that middle path. Mm-hmm. You do have a plan, you have ideas and visualizations of what you want to achieve but those are just possibilities they're not mm. they're not like oh i'm gonna you know cut slash my wrist if i don't do this project or whatever so even now i'm working so bringing this to current date mm-hmm. i'm simultaneously <clears throat> kind of reviving my my running career so i'm getting pretty intense on training for that so i'm doing at least two hard workouts a week on running uh, which takes a lot of energy. And then another two days a week, I'm climbing hard, um, particularly now focusing on my first 514 wow. uh, after 40 years of climbing. Wow. <laughs> and then uh, and then two days a week uh, doing the development side. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's, and this is all while I'm living in Mazama. So I feel like this is a pace and a structure that I can sustain for months mm-hmm. on end and, and almost indefinitely. But so I feel like, the, for right now, for where I'm at, this is the process. And I've always been, I guess that's what it comes down to is I'm process driven rather than goal driven. Exactly. And that's yeah. the thing that, that I'm like finding from people who are my, um, just far along in the things that they enjoy and do. Right. And in their own mistakes is like being process oriented. Exactly. And that's when I listen to other people, whether they're coaches, athletes, any anybody in any career really mm-hmm. i'm always look, listening for certain like threads in in there and people that seem to me to be successful but also be fulfilled mm-hmm. and feel like part of a bigger something bigger than they are mm-hmm. and i feel like uh that a big common denominator is they are process oriented and you can't go too far with that i think if if all you do is just deal with process then you do you kind of lose cohesiveness, mm-hmm. I think, or the, direction. There is a, where that middle way once again comes, again, comes into, yeah. into play, and that's where I think, like when when I, I guess I project and bemoan like that, you know, that average uh, corporate America kind of thing is what I'm really saying is, is someone who uh, identifies that they're uncomfortable with certain aspects of their life, or they 
they they don't like them and right. then they don't do anything about them and they're complacent and they continue on even if that might going even, to denial yeah and yeah. that might even be someone who's like <laughs> you know a runner and they're like running and they're doing all this like killer shit in terms of running but they don't project it outwards and because it's not really what they want to be doing. There might be like an athlete, but oh, yeah. that's not the way they're getting their rocks well, off. I guarantee like, you some of the top level athletes in any sport, including running, mm-hmm. some of those people hate what they're doing. They're good at it. Yeah, yeah. And they got the right situation. They had the right coach. They had the right situation. And they're going as far as they can with it. And I respect people that do have that willpower. Yes, I agree. Um, it's a lot of It's discipline. just not my way of doing it. No, it's yeah. not mine either. And unfortunately, what happens with sports in particular is they start cutting corners. Mm-hmm. And the people that dope and cheat or whatever, they're usually the people that are outcome driven. Mm-hmm. They want that outcome at any cost or whatever. You know, they, they catch wind of other people taking shortcuts, so they'll take an even shorter shortcut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, to me, that's not worth it at all. To me, it's like I would much rather fall down nine times, get up ten, mm-hmm. and be more fulfilled at the end of that process rather than taking that shortcut to get to that same point. Well, and I feel like, you know, when I, when I look at individuals in, in those different scenarios, I feel like it's similar, right, Um to to the person who is like abusing substances, yeah. To the point oh, yeah, of doing sure. like instant yeah. gratification, being very. Yep. That's once again, that's very much like outcome driven, right? I had a little epiphany it's, about this. Now that we're talking about drugs, it's also yeah, we're talking yeah. about drugs. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I think we talked earlier at some point about um, trying different drugs, hallucinogenics <laughs> or whatever, and that, and it occurred to me, I'm like, okay, so you know, I've experimented throughout my life, you know, with you know, not heavily, but. Um, I think we talked a little. Did we talk about a little bit of LSD? Yeah, or, we did talk know. a little bit about LSD. And yeah. uh, you know, I think I qualified it in that I've never taken more than like one dose. Mm-hmm. And yeah, usually yeah. Usually like a half dose or something. But uh, I, I had I started thinking about it, like, hold it. You know, I did it probably like half a dozen times, and they were all positive experiences, and they were in nature. And I, I think I did a good job of handling that part of it. Mm-hmm. And I feel study. like they were powerful and beneficial experiences. But the last time I did it was probably in the early 80s. And I'm like, why did I do it then? And I haven't done it since. Uh-huh. And then it occurred to me, because I've tried you know, other drugs since then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why, not, why not the acid? And then I thought about it. I'm like, oh, climbing. Uh, the difference was, once I took up climbing, it's like, so t- to me, LSD is kind of like adventure in a pill or, mm-hmm. or in a, you know, artificial, in a chemical. And, and, and the type of experiences you have on these hallucinogens are, to me, f- fulfilled by when I go and venture, climbing in particular, in the mountains, uh-huh. that, that sense of a separate reality and, and being in a completely different environment, like uh, context of your brain, mm-hmm. your mind, everything. And all of your behavioral tendencies. Yeah, I mean, and- I, there was a book called, uh, uh, there was an author called Carlos Castaneda back in the 70s. Oh. Um, and, and going back to this philosophical stuff, he wrote a series in the, we used to read them about, and he'd be on peyote and other drugs mm-hmm. and all these experiences. But the, um, but that concept of a separate reality where, where there's like other realities other than what we consider conventional. Mm-hmm. And with climbing, I feel like that's a tangible, real world mm-hmm. way to engage uh, a, a, an adventure and a challenge of something completely foreign mm-hmm. to your day-to-day experience. So like even 
almost 24 hours ago, I was rappelling in the dark down off my pro- cleaning project on Goat Wall and Mazama and stumbling down without a flashlight, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, just kind of. And, and I remember at one point, I'm like, I'm going to trip and break my face open here mm-hmm. if I keep doing what I'm doing. So I stopped at a certain point and just started doing a deep tidal breathing into my stomach to ground myself and get my energy back, get my focus back. And just, I just remember that was what I did to get out of that mm-hmm. situation. But, but when you're um, on a wall like that and climbing in particular, your uh, your whole world becomes very different. Like your references, you're looking for these little holes. You're looking for little cracks, and instead of dealing with time and distance, you're dealing with effort and vertical, mm-hmm. like height, and the planes of the vertical rather than the horizontal. So it's it's like the twilight zone. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so once I can get my fix of that, I just don't have that craving to do the hallucinogenics so much. And I'm not saying I would never do them again, but, but I feel like that was just a little epiphany I had. It was like, why, you know, why was it that, 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 that was, I, I found that, uh, beneficial experience. And then I just, Lost you the weren't urge seeking to do it. it. Like, oh, I wonder what this. Yeah, because be like. going yeah. to the mountains accomplished the same thing, and climbing in particular did that. Running a little bit of that. Running mm-hmm. is more. I associate that with cannabinoids and <laughs> the cannabis experience. Have you ever ran? Like, would you do like long, um, long unsupported stuff into the backcountry? I, you know, I I've done. Not yeah, running's kind of interesting. I guess because I've come from the background of competitive running, yeah, that I've been more focused on the shorter stuff mostly. Um, I used to, even back in the seventies, I was doing long trail runs mm-hmm. when no one else was. So I'd be like out there in the Pacific Crest Trail running oh, for yeah. you know like ten miles back, and people would see me like, "Whoa, what the fuck?" You know, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. where'd you come from? You know, it's a bear. And um, anyway, so I but I just uh, as far as doing like you know fifty milers, nar nar whatever. Mm-hmm just never really made that leap i've done runs up to like 30 miles just kind of spontaneously well so like if i go out but i go and, by feel so i think that's part of it is that. yeah planning a big run like that that's just something i haven't done and, and you see and that's that's what i'm learning more of because i i'm having i have this like philosophical question is like the process like what process do i want and then i have to be able to evaluate what percentage of suffering Right. That, I, that I'm able to contend with, like, and, and to not have diminishing returns, because right. I found out there's like a trip with like a certain amount of difficulty. Right. I'll come back and I'll be stoked and I'll be ready for the challenges, yes. less yeah. likely to have injury and and just be ready and and fit for the next outing. But when I would go out on these long distance um, ones and they're unsupported and like they're pushing my limit in terms of distance, right? I'd have a similar experience to what you're talking about. And you gave me an epiphany because it reminded me of my challenging trips on mushrooms. Okay. Right. We're right. like, I, I I've have had a few of those. Yeah. Too. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you know, what you is know, it about mushrooms that <laughs> creates that? Maybe it's because of the stomach problems or yeah, something. Yeah, it, perhaps it is. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my God. Like, Why oh, did I do that? Yeah. I'm dying. It's everywhere. <laughs> but like when I've had those challenges, um, all the things that I had encountered would reveal different aspects of my character. Yeah. And it was being, you know, in an environment that's completely foreign to me. So I couldn't fall back onto my um, my my regular tendencies. Right. Right. And I didn't have anything to comfort me. So it's almost like just you're you're you have to deal with this. And that's right now. now. That's an interesting point. OK, so I, I remember that on LSD in particular, mm-hmm. I would be like 
in some situation and maybe starting to freak out a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like you start getting that paranoia or something accelerates. And I do remember on multiple occasions telling myself, calm down. You're on a drug right now. Mm So, and this probably was the fact that I wasn't taking more than, yeah. you know, a big dose, but you are on a drug right now. You're, that's what's causing this. Just chill out, let yourself come back, you know, to some grounded level. Mm-hmm. So I was able to kind of pull myself back from getting caught up in that negative spiral mm-hmm. or whatever. And I think that people that freak out on these drugs don't, aren't able to pull themselves out of that. So they're not able to stop and say, hold it. You're on this stuff. You'll be fine in a couple hours, you know, just stay with it and be calm. And that's where a good sitter is really important yeah. in that sense. And like, and I actually didn't have that. Usually. Neither did I, Cause I always do shit on my own. I'm <laughs> like, Oh, own. this is like, not or the other guys are in the same boat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but with mushrooms, I'd even get to the point mushrooms. I did it more than LSD cause LSD. I didn't get in this time loop, but it'd be like, Oh no, you're freaking out. This is, you're on a drug right now. Just mm-hmm. take a deep breath. Yeah. And then it's like, wait a minute. There's rattlesnakes. They're like, I just completely <laughs> forgot about everything I said. And then yeah. all of a sudden, like a few minutes or, you know, time yeah. stretch. I don't know how long time passes. Time, yeah, it just passes. But then I'm like, wait, you're on a drug right now. And yeah. then I'd go, and I'm like, coyotes. And I'd be like, <laughs> yeah. And just go through. And what I found, though, is that, like, in, in that challenging trip that, that I'm thinking of specifically is I was learning to um, be able to to take myself back to baseline and it's challenging. I don't think it's a given that, Oh, it's going to apply to your life. Especially those things are hard to retain. Uh, especially if you don't like journal and stuff, you know? Right. But like, I feel like it's the same when, um, I'll take it on another one, but when I'm on a mountain, it's like, Oh, this exposure is like, uh, and then I'm starting to get anxiety because you're on this exposure and then you get fear of falling. It's like, Oh wait, I'm on a mountain. People have been on this mountain before. You've been on mountains before. You've climbed this before. And then I take myself the baseline. And yeah. I feel like it's it's get hitting all of those things. And looking like like what you're tied into, mm-hmm. if you're tied in, and or I what you're standing on. And I can't just untie yeah. and get in my car. Yeah. Like, and that's when I, when I was doing those uh, long distances, right, where I'm really pushing it. When I get halfway through, I don't recommend this for anyone. Um, <laughs> when I'm like 15 miles in there, for instance, right. I'm like, I want to be done. Oh, and yeah. it's like the yeah. only way to be done is back. Yeah, and it's like I knew at the time because I'd do it where I was within reach of my car that I can make those and be safe. But like mentally, it was, mm-hmm. and there was nothing that that would make me feel better or make it go away. And I would, I've been there before, sure, but I haven't been there more than a hundred times. I haven't been there more than fucking 15 times at Uh that point, right? Yeah. So it's like, I'm in the woods, completely unfamiliar territory. I can't stop and sleep because that makes it worse. Right. And so now I'm forced, it's an adventure. And what I would categorize to me as that is what an adventure is, not not suffering out in the woods, but like being in an unfamiliar place and having to confront challenges and everything yeah and and i think that then again again kind of this middle path thing Mm -hmm. it's like you know whatever i'm doing whether it's climbing you know having any kind of adventure it's like to me it's like a mixed bag where by definition adventure involves uh, uncertainty Mm -hmm. and new things and having to deal with them but the point isn't to just throw yourself willy-nilly you know into that adventure or into that uncertainty completely Mm -hmm. so in other words the ability to visualize in advance 
you what you're gonna encounter like plan a little bit so like like if i'm putting up a route okay well here's you know it's probably like x number of pitches high you know there's probably me a crux at these points um you know try to develop a picture and then run through my head the scenarios that i might encounter mm-hmm. uh and same thing you're like i'm running a race like okay like uh you know i'm gonna run this race it's a certain number of laps on a track i'm gonna start hurting at a certain point and i just need to learn to calm down and not freak out and quit you know so that ability to visualize scenarios in advance, but then be open to those scenarios either not happening or some other scenario coming up and then dealing with those. And that's to me what the difference between being successful at adventures or athleticism is either you're able to visualize that, or maybe a coach can help you do that. Uh, Someone else can help you, a teammate, Uh, you know, a climbing partner. Um, but it's that going to the unknown, going to the edge, going to the abyss, looking over, deciding what the next step, whether it's going to be productive to keep going with that, or maybe try a, a tangent. And I have a big theme when I did, I did this, um, talk, uh, two months ago about, uh, some of the climbs I did in the late eighties that are Alpine. And I, I came up with this theme because the one connecting theme between these big climbs I was doing was I would get to a certain point in the climb and the crack would run out mm-hmm. or something like that. Whoa. And I'd, I'd have to traverse out of it and traverse sideways, find another crack and keep going uh-huh. rather than just re- bailing on it. Yeah. And I did this over and over again. So I, a lot of the routes you'll, you'll see that I put up because I, I was climbing in an era where I wasn't putting bolts in, so I couldn't just plow straight up. But a lot of the routes that were obvious cracks from the bottom to the summit had already been done. So I was in that gray area where cracks would go up and then you had to face climb around a corner, find another crack, etc. And so I call it the lateral move and you can do this in your life too. It's like, as you're coming up, you, you, you visualize like, okay, I'm going to have to make some lateral moves. And then as you're getting to that point where you think you might have to make that move, you look in advance and plan, okay, I see a crack over here. I see another one over here. Which one seems more likely, you know? And just, and again, with whether you're talking about your career, uh, relationships, um, you, you get these opportunities to branch or make a lateral move or, you know, try different things. And your ability to anticipate the fact you have to do that and then also anticipate whether to go left, right, center um, will determine a lot of times whether you're successful. And I feel like where I've gotten to this point where I feel successful is because I was able to anticipate those, make those lateral moves when I had to, and then leave myself a buffer, you know, so like, I won't. I might go out on a limb financially, say to to do a book, to publish a book. Mm-hmm. But when I do that, I leave myself, you know, a buffer, a backup plan, or whatever it takes. So that might be more time consuming because it involves a lot of little side steps to other jobs or to do different things. But as long as I keep that big picture going and stay on that ultimate goal then those side, those lateral moves aren't taking me off course. They're keeping me on course actually. And so I think that's where people have trouble sometimes, especially younger people is understanding that, yeah, your life isn't going to be a straight line from, from here to success or whatever you, your ability to 
duck and dive and dodge or, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, come yeah. up with a side hustle for your mm-hmm. regular job or whatever it takes. That's probably going to be as much about how mm-hmm. your success as anything. Not that I can talk about finances that yeah, way, of but, course. but, yeah, but, but like, the fact that I've been able to make things, you know, sustain it as long as I have. And that goes back to the, even the injury stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, here's the most likely injuries I might encounter doing this type of training. So that's where I'm going to be careful. And I'm going to make those lateral moves. Like, like even that three strikes you're out on the bouldering, that's lateral movement. Cause it's like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get up something, but at that third strike, I'm, I'm making that lateral move to the next boulder problem. Mm-hmm. And that keeps me healthy. Mm-hmm. And I know that, and then I can always come back and try that other one mm-hmm. another time when I'm fresh and usually I'll be able to do it. So, Again, those the that ability to stay on a long term goal and a long term plan, but also make those adjustments along the way mm-hmm. and not have it sidetrack you. Because mm-hmm. nothing worse than your than feeling like, oh my god, I just wasted a whole year mm-hmm. of my life on this relationship or on this job or whatever. Like, oh, I have to throw that all away. Yeah, that's horrible. And so, I try I try to make sure things are building somewhat on each other. And, but also being realistic that I can't expect everything to, and I tell you, especially putting, when it comes to putting up routes, you know, if we want to talk about religion, if I was going to write a book, about like <laughs> the book of life or whatever, Murphy's law is like the number one first page. <laughs> Cause I don't know how many times I'm up, up on, you know, putting up a climb and like, all right, I got my drill. I've got all my gear. The drill's got the three-eighths inch bit in it. And I look at my bolt kit and they're all half-inch bolts. (laughs) I just screwed up. Like I got, you know, like Murphy's Law. I grabbed the wrong bag, you know. And then you got to improvise, you know. Mm -hmm. And I actually did that recently up on the the project I'm working on right now. First time this has ever happened. I'm like, I'm up there. I'm like, okay, I got all the gear. And I opened up the the bolt kit and it's all these half-inch fat bolts and I got a three-eighths inch uh, drill. Oh. What do I do? And I got to get this bolt in to get work on this whole climb. And fortunately, it's only a directional cycle. Like my life isn't completely depending on it, but mm-hmm. I don't want it to fail. So I figured out how to drill a half inch hole with a three eighths inch bit. Oh my gosh. And it actually worked. I couldn't believe it. I found the right, a, a softer piece of rock and was able to, as I drilled, I started moving the drill in a kind of a circle yeah. and it's got a rhythm going and I could eyeball and say, well, it looks about a half inch. Uh-huh. I just kept going, going, and going and it fit perfectly. Bam. I got my half wow. inch pulled out of the three <laughs> inches. That's tremendous. So that just happened last night. Yeah. You know? yeah. So it's like, those are the kinds of things wow. that just make you go, okay, well I just, you know, mm-hmm. MacGyvered that situation. Yeah. And to me, that's the fun part of life, life in general. Mm-hmm. It's not just like, oh, I was perfectly equipped and perfectly yeah, organized and efficient. And I'm, I'm just realistic. That I'm not that type of person. I'm, uh, I have to improvise all the time. Exactly. And some people don't aren't comfortable with that. And I, I really respect people that can plan so well that they never have to improvise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, or at least look that way. But I'm always improvising, you know, all the time. Just kind of not winging it completely, but definitely having to adjust, you know. So I think that's a big personal uh personal trait that helps you deal with challenges you know whether of, of all d- different types you know and i think it's important because like just you know with 
like you said, how it's never just a straight line. You know what, like success or what you can, what you. Some people it kind of is. It seems like, but yeah, yeah, very few. But yeah. I think that's you know <clears throat> that's not some object to them. Oh, they just tried a lot harder than you, and that's what you, right, you know it right. wasn't like yeah. effort or mer- effort based in that sense. Yeah. And the thing that it seems is like just being ready for whenever the moments arrive, like when the opportunities are there. Yes, right? and that's, that's that's a good point, and that's kind of goes with the lateral move thing mm-hmm. where you kind of open yourself up to like, okay, you know, this is, this is a point where I can slow down, look around, wait for the right time or right place, whatever, to make this move. Mm-hmm. And that's being open to reality, open to the universe or however you want to put it. Yeah. And, and yeah, so sometimes you might have to come to a full stop and wait and just wait it out. And okay, I'm waiting for this situation to gel or come together. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, in the meantime, you try not to waste your time, you, you know, yeah. try to pursue other things. So like right now, for instance, I'm not, I'm making some income from guidebooks, you know, but just enough to cover expenses, you know, I'm not putting away a bunch of money right now, but I'm making progress on all these other fronts mm-hmm. in terms of putting up routes, getting fitness, things like that. So I'm perfectly, I feel perfectly satisfied and no anxiety whatsoever in that, you know, I'm, I'm covering my bases on my, you know, expand on my bottom line and yet progressing in these other areas. And then later on, I might switch that around a little bit, you know, I'll back off on trying to push the athletic part or putting up routes and focus more on the, you know, the financial side or the career side. Is that you, uh, basically, is that, do you say that because you, you know, the, like you value experimenting or, um, it's part of necessity. necessity you, I mean, yeah, yeah, I don't have a yeah. big retirement plan. I mean, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not getting a pension. <laughs> That's yeah, for putting exactly. up our house. It's like I'm lucky to put anything away. Um, yeah, so it's a necessity, but it's also, uh, it's a challenge. It's a different challenge, you know, and, and like this year, you know, I worked the first half of the year, six months, put away some money. So the second half I can do these other things. And, um, and while I was working, I just was, I was very aware that that's the big plan. That's plan. Hopefully it'll come out and it has. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, um, successful in that sense. And I think, and then that, the fact that that has come along really well, I mean, it's down to like every, almost every deep facet that I've planned this year has mm-hmm. come to fruition. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And I think that goes to the diet thing where I was always being undermined, by these health problems and I won't go into the whole laundry list, but there's a long list of potentially almost life threatening problems I had wow. that despite being otherwise, you know, appearing healthy, feeling healthy most yeah, of the time good choices, you know, with your activity. Yeah. And, uh, but I, I just, things were not right. And it wasn't until I really sorted the diet part out and it's led me to carnivory and basically not eating plants at all because my body just doesn't deal with them very well. And now that I have sorted, and I've always been aware for like this entire span, that once I got that piece of the puzzle in the right, you know, place, the right time, that the other stuff will be so much easier. It was your largest looming challenge yeah, for a while. It was my right, limiting right. factor. Mm-hmm. And other people, it might not be diet, it might be something else, it might be a relationship, it might be education, whatever it would be. And you need to address that and just never give up on it. And I see people giving up on all kinds of things and ways 
that it's it's kind of sad when they all their potential kind of gets lost because of they're blindsided they're not seeing that they do need to address that thing and to take care of it so that they can flourish beyond that and i think the ability to evaluate yourself objectively and realistically on those terms and not be harsh but to be realistic mm-hmm. and um that's a very powerful thing and kind of really hard to develop and that that goes back to the beginning when we were talking about zen and things like that the dao and things like that because that's the baseline where you just constantly uh, evaluate yourself mm-hmm. in in that that overall context and what you know are you on the right path are you missing things are you not observe you have to be observant so in other words to move forward you don't want to do it blindly you need mm-hmm. to be able to see where you're going and the only way to do that is to be observant and not and all you know bad bad shit happens you do get blindsided mm-hmm. you know it might be a health issue it might be a random thing and you have to that's where you you can be thrown back onto your resources whether it's social network or financials, you know, like having something saved. So, you you know, that's part of that whole middle path and that balance is having those. And that's a human narrative, right? Yeah. Where you, being blindsided is almost like just a given aspect of life, right? Yeah, and, and it's, you know, I, I think that's kind of the poetry of life is that, <laughs> is that we're delusional enough to think that we matter yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that our right. lives matter to anything or anybody. So you've got to be delusional to at least to even move forward, mm-hmm. but then also be aware as you're doing it to not screw it up, you know, yeah. to have that uh, ability to be objective, to be aware. So it's again, that trade off. And, um, yeah. So I think that's, yeah, that's a big, big part of it. And, and I've even seen, you know, like how, how messy it could be with, with witnessing um, my progress or lack of progress, right, in a given sport, um, and watching how my psychological addictions, whether it's like insecurity or, you know, I'm being humble, and it's like, no, you're just undermining yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Or like, um, you know, not trying when you're when you're in a group of people, like just all these things right, that can happen right. to to the very not very, something I'm super familiar with. Yeah, yeah. I don't really give that much of a shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've always been, but I understand. Like, yeah, it, it's that's that's a huge element of yeah, not being falsely humble or like mm-hmm. that false humility. That I really don't like that when yeah. people like, oh, it was nothing or oh, no, 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 no. It's like no own it yeah you know you admit you want this you made the effort you're going for it Mm -hmm. you might have screwed up but you're gonna get back on your feet you know just be honest about all that don't and don't blame and blaming other people making excuses oh i'm just you know i'm just unlucky because of this or that you know Mm -hmm. and that's just you know and that's just getting in the way of your own like you know your own expression right and that's where i think what it is is like just to put it in the most general terms is the pursuit of unobstructed self-expression right because like what you're almost the things that you describe too with like uh even i think we're talking about it before the podcast like biology and how like some of those things also with uh withdrawing and being a visual learner um come into play with route setting and rock climbing it's like yeah sure you you know you're obsessed and you love rock climbing you love route setting but like really though maybe you just love like a collection of activities 
that happened to also overlap with rock climbing and um and other things you know grip you but rock climbing just had that magic you know formula in the right things, time yeah and and so yeah so there there's uh, somewhere i can bring age into the picture here yeah so like the the first half of your life one of the big challenges is dealing with frustration mm-hmm. because when you're young you you know you don't have the resources that were experienced to deal with a lot of stuff right shit's like coming out of wherever um so frustration is is your co-pilot mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah, situation. Yeah. and later on in life um hopefully you've being able to sort most of that stuff out and then it becomes regret mm. it's like oh if i'd only done this 10 years earlier or if i'd already always made that decision you know, if i made that decision instead so that's that's the the weight that you drag around when you're later in life mm-hmm. and um and i think in 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 there's a place for those feelings mm-hmm. and you don't deny them or anything mm-hmm. like i've used frustration a lot to motivate myself to put up routes or to get out of bed or to do like hey man it's like it's energy i'm gonna Mm -hmm. use it you know and then hopefully if you do it in a healthy way that frustration becomes a positive thing it Mm -hmm. becomes that it it allows you to you know get your act together and to focus in the right way Mm -hmm. no that's what you learn is like those like those impulses whatever it may may be or whatever it is that you have right don't necessarily go away it's just yeah how you redirect them yeah and 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 being and 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 just developing a healthy habit. So like, say if I'm working construction and I'm trying to build something and then I screwed up and get frustrated and the clock's running and all this stuff, um, the ability to just reset, you know, scrap whatever it was that was a mistake, go forward and then learn from that, you know, so, and then get more efficient and, and know that in the bigger context of things, you will improve you'll you'll get more skilled and next you know that's how you learn um so but you know there's gonna be some gnarly words coming out of my mouth Mm -hmm. (laughs) when when i realized i screwed up and so i you know i'll embrace frustration wholeheartedly Mm -hmm. i might even like scream something out but then bam five minutes later i'm back to work and i'm doing it and i'm Mm -hmm. making progress again and and that's kind of a zen thing like Mm -hmm. People think, oh, Zen is just like being all chill and mm-hmm. zoned out or whatever. And actually, no, they say in Zen, it's like, I, I think there was some parable about uh, this this Zen master who's known for being like super chill, super, like never stressed about anything. And he was killed by a, a, a robber and at nighttime he got stabbed while he was going home, you know, in the dark. And it was a, he screamed uh, so loud that it literally woke up the entire village. It was like no one had ever heard a voice like this, like so passionate and screaming as wow. he was dying. Whoa. And they and that was his zen. Was he threw himself into that moment of frustration or death <gasps> or whatever it was? And that's the zen. Is like when you do something, you do it all the way, and you mm. do it with your full being, your full commitment, and so. And then again, going back to that regret thing, it's like uh, you don't just deny the thing, the mistakes you made. You own them. Hopefully, as you go along, the way, and then you can stay fresh and you can stay resilient. And I feel like I've done a good job 
in the, in that I feel like I wake up in the morning now at my age and I don't have a lot of baggage and regrets, you know, in my life. I mean, I literally could keel over in the next hour and I got, you know, I feel like I left some cool stuff behind in terms of the climbs. Mm-hmm. I had, a, a, you know, a really good ride to make that all happen. Yeah. And yeah, and, and so everything is cake from here on. And I love mm. that feeling of everything from here is cake, you know? That's so awesome. And it's just like you feel like not I won the game per se, but it's like I definitely fulfilled a lot of my expectations. Mm-hmm. But I'm really looking forward to the other stuff too. Yeah, and that's a beautiful spot yeah. right there. Because like there's – like I would say that there isn't any con- – paradise isn't real, right? Like – yeah, I mean, I, it, it, it kind of is and kind of isn't. It's like, to me, like, when you're fully engaged in the moment and things are just the way you want them or or hope that, you know, that that's real, you know, yeah. and that can be a paradise in, unto itself. But it's usually, it's like elusive, mm-hmm. you know. But, but that, that, so that I think is like the the concept of paradise you know where everything everything is resolved and there isn't anything undone right right, like, right. you're right it, it's elusive but i think like that's a wonderful place to be and we we arrive there several times at least i hope a lot of you guys arrive well, children there are born with several it times. yeah well, as that, that, that kind of blank like i mean they're they're able to live in the now oh, so yeah. completely that like a baby i mean and that goes back to the Zen thing. Like a baby is like either totally happy mm-hmm. or screaming his head off mm-hmm. or, you know, there might be an in between, but they throw themselves into that moment, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and we kind of lose that. I mean, we shouldn't live like a baby our whole lives, yeah. obviously, but, I don't want to change but anyone's that, that sense of nowness and presence, uh, presence that they have and that ability to learn and open themselves to the world and take in stuff very mm-hmm. quickly and adapt. I think that's something we need to kind of keep, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I often reference myself like, okay, what would my 10 year old self think yeah. about what I'm doing right now oh, with my cool. life or my thing? And it'd be like, that's cool. Yeah. Whoa! Look at that. You know, you might say, "Well, he's running kind of slow, but at least he's running." You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, but he's like, he's hanging up on that cliff and he's doing that cool thing. You know, so that's a, to me a litmus right there of like your quality of life, or you know, whether you're you're doing, you know, it's what would your eight or ten year old self? Because I feel like eight or ten years old, you know, as a teacher, mm-hmm. I've dealt with different ages, and I feel like that's a good age because it's like you're far enough along to be able to kind of get a feeling for what the world is about. You can conceptualize too, like what yeah. like rock climbing adventure is yeah. and stuff. But you don't have all the baggage. You don't have all this uh, expectation and pressure. And so you're, 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 you're kind of like who you are in your soul at that mm-hmm. point, you know, assuming you've had a decent, you know, fortunate to have a good childhood. So I feel like that's, that's a, 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 as good a reference as any, uh, you know, to evaluate where you're at. It's like, what would my, you know, I mean, you might pick some, someone else might pick another age, but I just remember being, you know, eight or 10 years old and especially in summer yeah. and I'm being cooped up in school, like going out and just being able to run around the woods and, oh, yeah. and that freedom and not having a lot of cares about, Oh, what's my next, what's my career going to be? Or what's my, you know, it's like, you're just being expressive of who you are at that time. And, and, and so I think it's helpful to have some means, some, that to me, that's just my personal little mm-hmm. scenario that I can use. But well, it's a good coping coping mechanism and cornerstone because I think it's important because you, you know, like by by the sound of it, is I, I imagine you have these feelings like where, where 
you're reflecting on the quality of your life, right? And the things that you've done and the things that you, you get that, to do. And that's speaking as an old man. So mm-hmm. now flip the script. So say if you're in your 20s or something like that, um, flip it around to where what would my 80-year-old self advise me to do right now mm-hmm. so in other words what kind of plans should you make what kind of trade-offs should you should make mm-hmm. you know and and uh so that's that's a chat and this is like a mental challenge um uh, game you're kind of playing mm-hmm. like so i'm having to imagine being eight or ten years old which is kind of easy because i was yeah, yeah you're having to imagine like being 80 something which is a little tougher maybe but but it gives you a different way to perspective perspective on it, give perspective on your life mm-hmm. and or and, and and one way to make that happen is to have people in your life throughout like a whole range of ages or demography mm-hmm. or whatever experiences so I, that's that's what keeps me social i mean i'm a mm-hmm. i'm a very independent animal mm-hmm. you know i'm i'm a lone wolf in a lot of ways I just, i'm very happy to be off in the woods for days at a time not talking to people but when i'm around people everyone can tell you i talk to everybody mm-hmm. Fun Rock at Mazama is, you know, that's yeah. where I meet everybody. And whether they're kids, old people, whatever, dogs, cats, whatever, yeah. I'll, I just, I'll just at least, you know, open the door a little bit and, you know, see what they've got to talk about or thing. Mm-hmm. And so that gives, again, that perspective mm-hmm. to evaluate where you're at and, and feel like, yeah, you know, that's probably a healthy perspective. I think where people run into trouble is they restrict their, their lives so much to maybe just a a very few friends or people within a certain, you know, age or whatever. If you look at it from the psychoanalytical perspective, um, like, uh, Carl Jung and the likes, and you'd say that you, we outsource our sanity very much. So Uh like I, we, you know, we'd have a conversation as as friends and I'm going to say some shit. And depending on what you, your reactions, right, even your facial reactions, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going, I'm then shaping what my thoughts and my beliefs are. And right. that's where you can get like kind of caught up. If you're in a bubble, you right. can get some fucked like uh, ethics and values and principles. And, and you, you know, start direction. warping, warping your movement, your actions, yes. and your, your behavior, which I will say off of like a, a tangent is, is why I started this podcast. And that's why it's awesome, yeah. becoming becoming human in that sense. I guess it? I had that's why okay. I'm doing this podcast because I had a sense talking to you in that very brief period of time uh-huh. that yeah, you definitely were had that quality mm-hmm. that where you're curious, you're and not just randomly. You have a, a perspective on things, mm-hmm. and 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 you have a very um, I know it's just it, it just clicks. I guess mm-hmm. you know yeah. with our personalities for sure. Um, and I think that's a very, very powerful thing to keep and to nurture. Mm-hmm. And that's where the technology, like with podcasts, I mean, the internet, I mean, you got to realize, you know, I grew up, the internet came along when I was already middle-aged. Yeah. Right? So to me, it's just magic to like be able to access the entire world, you know, at your fingertips and mm-hmm. run into people like you mm-hmm. yeah. that are just switched on in a similar way or whatever mm-hmm. and willing to like open doors or open concepts or whatever and have these discussions and so like like even in this discussion we've had here mm-hmm. i mean you're technically you're interviewing me i guess but i've already learned a lot about you and like how you do things or mm-hmm. what you've done and that's intriguing to me and then yeah so that's i think that's really that's the coolest part about it. like all this technology and social mm-hmm. media and all this stuff is that it allows you to connect connect with people mm-hmm. It's. I really feel fortunate. <laughs> yeah. Not only do you live 
pretty near where I live, but you're actually right on the commute halfway between where I live yeah. half the year, you know, in Seattle and half the year in Mazama. Mm-hmm. So it's, that's pretty amazing. That's just like uh, serendipity. Yeah, that is. And I love serendipity. That's mm-hmm. like one of my favorite things in the whole planet. Yeah, world. for me too, because it's that opportunity and luck when it meets. And that's, to me, that's the closest thing to like the magic mm-hmm. or the, you know, the kind, you know, things that are like, whoa, wow, okay, yeah, how does that happen? Because, like I say, I go online and I'll like see, oh, that guy's got a really cool podcast, but he lives in, you know, Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, chances are I probably won't meet him, <laughs> you know, or whatever. But that's cool. Yeah. Know? Whereas this is a case where it's like almost the other way around where I met you in real life first. Mm-hmm. And now I guess this will probably go up on the to the world, so to speak. But, um, but anyway, so. I'm not sure where I'm going with that. <laughs> no, but, but that serendipity and that being open. And like I said, I'll talk to everybody. And then uh, like every hundredth person or whatever it takes, bam, something clicks. Yeah. And then that's, and that's how I find out. That's how you find out about opportunities. Like if you want to change your career, just talk to a lot of people and find out what they're doing. And, and always make, you know, when you converse with people, I think it's something that people have trouble with is like, and I learned this as a teacher is let them you know, let other people tell you, like, be a little curious. Find out, like, oh, hey, so how'd you get here? Or, mm-hmm. Like, what what would you do today? People are interested or excited. Talk about themselves talk first. Talk about themselves. Yeah. 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 Everyone will talk about themselves. They, they don't necessarily care what you think or what you're doing, mm-hmm. which is fine. But once you kind of get that momentum and then, and, and, and I'll just, I have something called optimal contact time. Mm-hmm. It's a concept. So <laughs> what it is, it's, um, it's what when you have an interaction with somebody at a certain point it kind of starts dropping off mm-hmm. like the value that your interaction is having is start diminishing returns mm-hmm. and for some people it might be like hey how's it going and then mm-hmm. anything beyond that isn't going to be like yeah, yeah. they're grumpy or whatever <laughs> it is and and whereas other people's like with you and me mm-hmm. like obviously our optimal contact time is at least several hours mm-hmm. right so yeah. so and then once you, the, the value of this concept is then instead of judging people and saying, oh, they're an asshole or, you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, they don't have any value for me. It's like, oh, no, they have value for me within this framework. That's nice. I, so for I like five that. minutes, yeah. I, you know, in five minutes talking to this person, I can maybe find out some cool stuff. Mm-hmm. But then probably after about five minutes, for whatever reason, uh, it just, doesn't work as well. That, that's cool because I, I struggle sometimes with people where I have to set boundaries and it's like, I love you, yes. but I hope this boundary that I'm setting right now doesn't make you think that I really don't yeah. like you. It's- yeah, and it and, and becomes not a judgment. It's more like, I mean, you're making a judgment about energy and stuff, mm-hmm. but n- no one has to be insulted because yeah, it's not you a didn't want to spend... against them. It's a judgment just for your own self. Yeah, and it's like, you don't. they don't have to feel bad because you say, well, I got to go somewhere here in five mm-hmm. minutes or whatever. Um so anyway, that optimal contact time to me is like an objective way or like a way to kind of like allot your energy. Mm-hmm. So like obviously if you're in a city with a you know tons of people around you, your optimal contact time for people is going to be much smaller probably because mm. you're going to run into so many people during the day. If you can't give them each five which minutes. The studies have shown too, which people just, you know, in New York, they look down and then they, they just walk on. And it's you're, you're right because you can't, you only have so many resources. Yeah. Yeah, so like my interactions with people in Mazama at Fun Rock is much different than when I'm in Seattle, you know, 
doing my errands or whatever. So it's like, I'm a city person when I'm there, you know, and I'll still talk to people or do whatever. Um, but so if someone meets me in Mazam at Fun Rock, they're meeting a slightly different guy than if I'm at, you know, wow. Green Lake trying to get in a 15 miler or something. Mm -hmm. So it's just, uh, and that's just part of your facets of your personality or facets of, and I think that it's a healthy thing to have these tools, like, like these, like being able to budget yourself, like, okay, in this situation, I have, you know, I have lots of time and I don't meet a lot of people during the day. So I'll just hang, if you bump into somebody, you, you know, you'll talk for, talk with them for 10 minutes mm -hmm. instead of five. And you're not like, make, it's not like a, a decision you're making, like, mm -hmm. like oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, you're not pulling out your spreadsheet. But like I said, it's like, there's definitely certain people, like, and for me, it's a big thing in the climbing gyms because mm -hmm. I know so many people in the climbing gym. Oh, yeah. And people go, hey, Brian, what's up? You know? And it's like, uh, you know, if I spent talk for five, and I learned this teaching. This is mm -hmm. something I learned from teaching. Oops. I was teaching high school biology. I had 120 kids a day come through my door. Whoa. Yeah. So I couldn't, I think I, I remember doing the math. Like if I spent individually like three minutes with each kid, yeah. I'd run out of time. Wow. You know what I mean? You know what yeah. I mean? Oh, yeah. So I, I couldn't feel too bad about the fact that there are certain kids that even at the end of the year, I hadn't talked with them for more than a few seconds yeah. even, There's personal, one-to-one. -one. That's just a limitation of that situation. I had no control over how many people. That was a set thing. That was my parameter. Mm -hmm. And I had to accept that. So that's one of the reasons I actually didn't stick with classroom teaching. I just, mm. that was just not a good parameter for me. So we're yeah. coaching though, where I was dealing with say 10 kids mm -hmm. or 15 was perfect. Because then I had like two hours and I could spend five minutes with this kid, five minutes with the kid, tailor it, you know, get to know him better. And then how you're spending your time too is it's following more like that optimal, how you believe that you can actually do something. Yeah. In this and I could be a, more and maybe more effective yeah, as a teacher as a coach so rather than getting distracted say 10 minutes talking to a kid in the class mm -hmm. and the other kids are getting bored or whatever um you know i was able to like calibrate my my focus to like okay let's stay keep it more gen generic you know get the concepts across and then dealing with a indiv few individual questions mm -hmm. whatever it took versus like as a coach i could take the time a little bit more and focus on that. And then my most successful coaching was actually, um, with people that, um, for whatever reason I could spend a lot of time with mm -hmm. and yep. actually, and actually my girlfriend that I had at one point, we lived together mm -hmm. and she just started jogging with me and she went from being a jogger to a national champion because I, we were, I was basically coaching her 24 hours a day. Oh almost. wow. Yeah. So she was able to just improve like dramatically. Yeah from the fact that she take she could she had the talent mm -hmm. and developed the motivation and then I was able to kind of take all my experience up to that point and make it help and almost like it. an objective perspective right because you can provide the objective perspective for yourself or another person can provide it but when it's yeah. provided in an effective yeah. manner then but I had to learn after that whole relationship and everything that I can't expect that, <laughs> that when someone like pays me to coach them that Okay, you're gonna be national champion, you know, because yeah. like I, I've already done it. It's like, well, hold it, that was a unique situation. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And but I've actually been surprised at how far I've been able to take people, even with constraints of time. And, oh wow! So yeah. like uh, last year, um, I was coaching a guy for um, 
running. I'd been actually coaching several years and I'd known him from way back. Mm-hmm. He's like a little brother to me, kind of. I worked with him on different jobs and he was a teammate on my brother's bicycling team. He retired from cycling, still was active. He wanted to do, he was doing marathons actually. Mm-hmm. So I coached him for two marathons. But in the, in the, in that course of doing that, I, I told him like, dude, you're, you're kind of, I'm not saying you're going to waste your time because he's doing well at the marathon. Mm-hmm but you are a sprinter. That's what you're built for. So finally we, we took, the, we had the opportunity to spend the whole season, you know, by basically nine months building up and his first track season of his whole career is 49 years old. Mm-hmm. He goes to nationals and gets three medals and three events that he ran. Whoa! And it's like, I've never heard of anybody in their first year doing that at that level and being the oldest guy in his age group. That's impressive. And part of it was just, I just identified his talent mm-hmm. and then I didn't, screw it up. I didn't let him get hurt. You know, I kept him motivated and we did the right training at the right time. And, and he, and he was already, I respected the, what he brought into it, which is a lot of experience as a competitor mm-hmm. in different like sports. Mm-hmm. And so it was a very mutual dynamic dynamic. And, um, so that's the kind of thing I try to do is, is tailor things as a coach, um, to let, people shine in that they bring their strengths out and yet I can kind of bring my own special sauce to, you know, get that extra little, you know, whatever it takes to, um, you know, and, and usually my, my main focus as a coach is, you know, that bottom line thing. Like I was like with my climbing career, don't let them get hurt, Mm -hmm. you know, stay, keep them healthy. And that's kind of like the, um, the, the Hippocratic Oath for doctors, mm-hmm. like don't do no harm. You know mm-hmm. that's what they're supposed to do, but unfortunately, that's yeah, not, exactly, not very well adhered to sometimes. Surgeons, but, but um, anyway, so that's kind of yeah, so that's kind of a bottom line mm-hmm. situation. So I guess that that's that concept of uh, that optimal contact time, that kind of allocating your energy. Mm-hmm. And doing it in a way, and you can do that throughout the day. You can do it throughout your life, even. Like, how much energy do I have to allocate to these different? Types, that's why I don't have a kid. I just mm-hmm. don't have the energy and time to allocate to bring another human being into the world and into adulthood mm-hmm. and still do these other things I'm trying to do. Exactly. I just, I'm just, I just don't, I'm limited that way. So, and, and that's something that I've had to look at is that by nature that creates a hierarchy. Yes. It's like there's yeah, an priority. undeniable, you know, hierarchy with, within, um, our own lives because I, I want to do all these things yeah, yeah, and I like doing all these things and then yeah. I realized that over time um, you know you, you have there's talent right and then there's there's uh, tendencies which I like adventure right right and, but over time I gain that hierarchy because it's like well I only have so much time to run and climb right I'm gonna climb I can't I'm believe gonna... you're, you're doing ultra running you're raising a kid you do these other sports, and you're what? You're how old? Huh? Twenty four. Oh my lord! Oh my yeah, lord. I, but I'm coming. Dude, what, to, it, what did you do for sleep then? <laughs> Maybe it's because it's getting late. I'm thinking yeah, about sleep. Yeah, yeah. That is like overwhelming to me it's to when think my about. I uh, was with his brother's dad for two weeks. I'm like. <laughs> I'm going to go do mountain outings every day. And oh, then I'm like, well, I'm, I'm so tired. And I was like the week after my, uh, my 40 miler and <laughs> <laughs> I go Jeez. climb like the, the next day or no, the day, two days after. And I'm like, why am I? Why am I not so confident on my grade? And I'm like, oh, I'm all yawning. I'm like, I'm yeah, so yeah. tired, and wow. I'm just coming to this point to where like I have to choose between these things. Not entirely, because like 
even yourself, right? You're, you're yeah. balancing yeah, these things. Yeah. It's like this very organic thing where you're like doing more and less yeah. and, and experimenting. And that's where I'm trying to do is do very, um, very, I'm trying to measure what I do and look within my own self what I like and what I don't like and then pivot appropriately. Yeah. And, and that's like, that's almost been an art and very challenging for me because it's hard to decide what's ego like yeah trying to run a long distance am i doing it for adventure for ego and right, so on right. and so forth and like but these things have revealed so much of my character because yeah. i think without these i would have just someone would be nagging at me right like well, to, i think too it's like in terms of character i think and i think we kind of share this a little bit is um i don't like to do things in a vacuum mm -hmm. so in other words if i go run 30 miles or, 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 or do a certain type of climb. I want to be able to share that on some level with other people, mm -hmm. you know, if not directly, that's why I love putting up routes. It's like I get to have this whole experience of putting up the route, climbing it, enjoy all that part of it. And then stand back and let people enjoy it. Yeah. And I get to share it. So it's like, I, I, maybe that makes it, I feel kind of greedy about that. It's like, mm -hmm. I can't just do something in this. I mean, I, I will do things just for their own sake mm -hmm. and no one ever has to acknowledge it or see it or whatever. But when you can share even just a little bit of that, yeah. it's so much more powerful, you yeah, know? That's, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I feel like even on my runs, it's like, well, I'm doing this run and I can't wait to tell so-and-so about mm -hmm. it or, or, or like I'll remember so I'm like oh I used my arms a certain way when I was sprinting mm -hmm. and I'm gonna tell the guy I'm coaching like oh, next time yeah. I see him like because I'm that's the thing I do is that when I coach is like I'm always coming up with ways of like how am I gonna describe this to somebody mm -hmm. you know so it makes sense to them that's why I love writing man yeah it's, wow exactly yeah and, and that's that magic formula that I was kind of talking about which is like with rock climbing it's a more likely that the people around me but I'm like let's go do a 30 mile run. And a lot of my friends, um, you know, specifically from jujitsu are like, that ain't my jam. Yeah. But if I'm like, let's, I'll take you up an Alpine route and yeah, yeah. like, you know, let's go cragging and just right here. Yeah, you don't yeah. have to do all this crazy committing training to do it. Yeah. And because of that, I get to show people and then I get it like, even though I don't know very, like I'm not very skilled myself, but I get to teach them what I know. Yeah. And then you get better. Yeah. In return, you get that exchange. And I learned yeah. that from teaching kids jujitsu um, uh -huh. and, and also adult jujitsu. I learned so much of the basic things because I got to, I had to internalize it and then I had to be able to describe it to the person. And then when they made mistakes, I had to critique them, which would mean that how I thought about it in my mind was so much more detailed because I'd like try to explain it and I'd skip over steps, not yeah. realizing in my mind I only have it as like, you know, yeah. the gist essentially. But that's where I'm looking at rock climbing. Why I think I like rock climbing is it's not even just the, the aspect of like all the things, you know, climbing itself, the technical aspects. I love that, but it's like the people, it's, it's all of these things. And even as a, you know, single father, like it's easier to take my son cragging than it is to go on a long run. Like, right. I right, don't, yeah. don't want to go on the long run on like the paved shit. Cause that's not yeah, why I run. Yeah, it's yeah, like, fuck yeah. this. But I, I do want to be respectful of your time though. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you, uh, do you have any, like any routes that you're putting up or any books or any projects that you're working on so more people can find you too? Yeah. I think, um, at this point, what I'll kind of throw out there that this is my good intentions and everyone that knows me knows to, add a fudge factor to this. <laughs> like, yeah, he said he was going to do that. And then a year later, you know, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, my plans right now are, uh, I'm working on, 
as as is usual at this time of year, I'm uh, doing some multi-pitch routes in Mazama that um, um, I should have at least one or two of those finished by the end of this season, hopefully. And uh, those will be in the range of 510 of climbing, uh, both trad and sport. And uh, my intention is, I might as well say it here, and then I'll <laughs> key, kind of put my... Uh, feet to the fire a little bit is uh i'll start in, in instagram mm-hmm. to at least kind of throw out there like what's going on you know keep mm-hmm. in, i feel like i do need to have a social media connection in there and i feel like instagram kind of is uh most appropriate to all the different things i'm it, doing it really does it has yeah. a great overlap to it yeah because you got Twitter. the running and the climbing putting up routes all that stuff so i'll have uh so yeah the multi-pitch i'm working on my first 514, um, in, which is in Mazama, and it's something I've been working on multiple seasons. Uh, so this will be like, yeah, basically two years into it right now. Oh, and wow. I think I, I was just working on it a little bit today in the last couple of days. I feel like it definitely, I feel like it will happen this season given, you know, decent conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you just never know until you're getting even close to it. But, Anyway, so that's something I'm focused on. I feel optimistic about it. And then uh, running-wise, I'm only coaching one person at this particular time. Uh, and that's going well. But uh, that at some point, I'll open that up again, mm-hmm. uh, maybe in terms of more like seminars or workshops even. Ooh, yeah. But uh, for different types of running you know, technique or training. And that's where um, I think I... At some point, I'll, you know, Instagram's kind of get, put my toe in the water, mm-hmm. and then, yeah, you know, ideally I'd get a YouTube where I could take some of these things and demonstrate them. Oh yeah, that'd be great. So I think that that's something down the line, mm-hmm. and then uh, yeah, so for the season, and then I'm working on I revised the uh, Mazama guidebook already this year, and then this winter I'm going to completely rewrite it and incorporate all of the. Mazama related material. So that'll be probably in the range of 400 routes, something oh, wow. like that. Mostly sport, but some trad. Mm-hmm. So I want to get that on the shelf by at least early next summer. Um, and so that'll kind of bring things to, you know, full circle on, mm-hmm. on the climbing side of it. Yeah. And then uh, this winter, hopefully I'll be on the road uh, traveling. I, I want I love the desert. I want to spend the whole winter if possible down in, Arizona, Utah area. Oh, are you going to um, climbing or are you going to climbing primarily? Yeah, oh, I'll be really? writing the book. So, you know, that's what I'll do at night and <laughs> find the library and just work oh, on that. That's rad. And then uh, climb during the day, run, mm-hmm. um, basically live out of the van kind of thing. You got a van set up? Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. So that's good. And then, um, yeah, so that hopefully it'll be my first like full, full. I've done like three months at a time doing that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So this will be like a, hopefully a full year by the time I get around to it. To, uh, getting on the tailwind of those three months is, is pretty enjoyable. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, like it's some, definitely. It's yeah. my, my thing. Is, I, I'm the person where I know it's going to be a part of my life. Like right now I'm kind of waiting yeah. um, in terms of just my son. Sure, yeah. Like in the summer, I want to build up so I can do spend a summer yeah. summers doing that. Yeah. You just um, take those steps, you know, mm-hmm. even a week or a month, whatever it takes, you know, to kind of get the, get things going so that when you finally fully go, you know, all in, you're you know, you know, it's most slow, of, gradual. Yeah. Adaptation. You know, 90% of what you're up against. Yeah. So, yeah. 
So yeah, hopefully that'll uh, carry through, and then uh, yeah, we'll just kind of take it from there. Kind of keep. I, I I have a lot of optimism about the sport, mm-hmm. where it's going. It's obviously a lot more people getting involved. There's gonna be some growing pains, but mm-hmm. you know, it's gonna be in the Olympics next year. There's a lot of oh wow things really? with with climbing. Oh yeah, I've been following the the competitive side of it on online. It's super easy to yeah. see, and it's pretty amazing. That's incredible. So and that's gonna just really blow things up. I mean. In t- Tokyo is where the Olympics are, and uh, in Tokyo already there's a hundred climbing gyms, Holy which crap. kind of blew my mind. But uh, it's a worldwide phenomenon, and I think the U.S. is going to keep growing. Well, yeah, they grow. The climbing gyms here are growing exponentially. Yeah, yeah. pretty much every town will have one very soon. I think. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's like I said, growing pains, but um, you know, as a climbing developer, that's part of. It's, <laughs> that's a you know, I, I I'm. Do, working with the local community, obviously Mazama, and I've done so in the past in North Bend and other areas. So I think it's manageable, and I think it's something that is healthy for people. I think it's you know be able to allow people to have at least a taste of adventure mm-hmm. and get outdoors and have contact with nature. So so I think that's I feel very good about that. Just like almost every um, every situation where you're confronting chaos in life, right? It's all manageable. Right? It, it yeah. comes with its own problems, and you could be like, oh, this is the end, or oh, this sucks, or any yeah. of those things, right? I don't, not being a seasoned, like, you know, a person climber, right? I don't know what it's like from that end. Yeah. But that's how it always, and it always, there's always ways to pivot off of it. Right? Well, I think I, that's the value of a podcast like this is like, mm-hmm. if people say get into climbing or running or anything, that, um, you know, they're new to it or relatively new, that, you know, people like me, what we have to offer is some experience, obviously, about mm-hmm. where it's been and where it can go. And so with these podcasts, like, you know, I think it's it's awesome that people quickly can at least get a perspective mm-hmm. on what the what the issues are they're going to run into or what, you know, questions they need, you know, need to be asking and um, to educate themselves. So I think that's that's very important. I think that's something that, that I didn't have as much when I, you know, most of the, obviously with my running career was literally two yeah. pages in yeah. a book, you know, I had to start everything from there. Climbing was not much more than that. Oh, and, wow. but in, and I wouldn't trade that for the world, yeah. that whole process. I'm glad I made it in one piece because mm-hmm. there was a lot of chances <laughs> to screw it up. Especially for oh my gosh. I, I tell you. I'll tell you, there's stories. That's a whole nother thing. It's just yeah, close yeah. calls and things like that. Oh, but, God. Um, anyway, so I think, yeah, so I think that's, uh, hopefully people can benefit from that and just, uh, you know, get a, pers- a perspective that allows them to enjoy mm-hmm. that in their life and enrich their life with it rather than make it just another grind or another, you know, thing that's going to, you know, create problems yeah, exactly. for themselves or whatever. Because, you know, there's, Especially with climbing, there's a lot of you know, you, it's it's a conse- high consequence activity. Mm-hmm. You can screw it up and you know regret it the rest of your life, even if you live in yeah. some situations. So it's like a chess match with dire physical consequences, right? Can be, yeah. So um, yeah, so, and that's tempering my comment about <laughs> about <laughs> how safe it is. Like yeah. you know, uh, like I said, it's pretty safe when you get to five thirteen or five twelve. So, yeah. but in the meantime, be very careful. Yeah, so I'm working there. I'm <laughs> a, you can go to death pretty quickly from perfectly safe to yeah, the other oh, yeah, side. You can. 
And that's all in that risk mitigation, right? Yeah, and I think that's, and again, just addressing that just briefly is like that's where social skills come into it mm -hmm. and being able to evaluate people because your life is in their hands yeah. in climbing, obviously, and um, not just just kind of, th you know. Throw caution to the wind. Yeah, I mean, like, you have to be a little bit in, in, uh, circumspect about, mm -hmm. you know, and finding reliable partners, and I think that's part of the game. Yeah, which is great for me. I won't take stuff on the yeah. tangent, but is because I'm the kind of person where it was like it used to be, and it still is, right, because it never does go away. You just deal with, like, higher and higher levels of it. It's like setting boundaries yeah, <laughs> and, yeah and also um if if you're doing something to, this is boundaries if you're doing something to me or you act a certain way and be like oh, i just can't hang out with you i'm gonna go hang out with someone else climbing is very apparent yes when i yeah. i met someone like and i love him to death but i'll be like climbing he's belaying and i just hear like crack and it's like a beer and i'm like oh. <laughs> and then all of a sudden i hear ch -ch -ch like in the same yeah. like within seconds of Jeez. each other and i'm like there's a beer in one hand yeah. and there's a joint and then yeah. and like i'm like this is nope nope like i smoke weed and i have nothing against people who drink but like i don't even smoke weed while i'm doing the thing because yeah. it's like i'll get anxious i'll get forgetful and then he'll yeah. like dab and then he'll be like as we're packing up wait what are we doing i'm like <laughs> oh my god okay so, but this is what what happened is like this is a very real scenario where it means a lot for me to be safe and then to yep. um, to be healthy, right? Yep. Whereas if I were just hanging out, you can just drag me down, and mm -hmm. I won't say anything because it's not you know you're not putting my life in risk. But in this scenario, you are, so I have to. It forces me to come out and say, "Hey, I got boundaries." Yeah. And, well, it's kind of like that optimal contact time mm -hmm. again. Yeah. And that that dovetails into that where, like, there's certain people like I'd be they're great to you know chat with or get stories from or mm -hmm. whatever but i wouldn't climb with them yeah because yeah. i just don't quite feel like either they there's something about technically they might screw up mm -hmm. or they just might get wear on my nerves at yeah, some yeah, point yeah. so it's just like you just develop that ability to you know say you know mm -hmm. categorize people like oh, these are the people that are casual acquaintance mm -hmm. and these are people that are i'm willing to climb with and at least you know for a day or so hang out with whatever mm -hmm. and then you just keep keep doing that mm. and that's i think a very useful way to um again not being pejorative or judgmental but mm -hmm. you do have to make those boundaries and those decisions about and you and you may screw up and decide oh i thought that person might be a screw up but i decided i do like to hang out with them mm, yeah. or whatever you know and you figure out what ways that can be healthy and work out mm -hmm. like there's yeah the, the, maybe you won't want to climb with that person but maybe you want to go for a run with them mm -hmm. yeah or, which i do with the, in that scenario it's perfect yeah. it's like oh yeah it's fine or even you know just on a practical level like you know someone's you know, a beginner like might take several hours just to teach them the fundamentals mm -hmm. versus someone else that's like already knows all the the, the fundamentals and you don't have to do that mm -hmm. And they're otherwise, you know, equally nice, cool people. So, it, you know, you make that judgment. Like, well, I'm going to go with that guy and save myself the effort. Mm -hmm. And then the other guy can take a class. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pay someone that's paid to do that professionally. Yeah. Not, I don't have to do that. So, mm -hmm. so yeah. So never, don't be apologetic about it, about having to make those decisions because you do have to make that, those decisions. And Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good takeaway. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate it. Awesome. It's been awesome. Woo, that was a great conversation with Brian. I love being able to talk to someone who's had so much more experience than I have in climbing, running, and just life in general. 
it gives me a really nice context within my own life and I can key in on the, the differences and deviations and also in the ways that I could relate to the person so that I, I can pursue what fulfills me more. And it's really inspiring to like be able to talk and just listen to people like Brian who put themselves out there and are so passionate about something that they spend years of their life working towards it. Um, that's something that I aspire to be and talking to more people like that, I feel like opens my mind to see the possibility of how I can be in similar places, you know, and also realize like how I'm different. Um, and how this is, you know, all of our own unique pursuit of revealing who we are to our own selves, I suppose. If you'd like to <clears throat> pick up some of Brian's guidebooks so you can check out some of the routes he set and possibly come to Washington and climb them, go to Mazama and check out some some of his routes on Goat's Wall. You can find his guidebooks on goatsbeardmountainsupply.com. I'll leave the links to that in the show notes. Um, you can find the show notes in your podcast app or if you go to becominghumanpodcast.com. And while you're there, uh, you can check out other episodes. You can head over to the shop and find some apparel that was made by me. And I love designing shit. It's a wonderful way to like express myself creatively and balancing out like my athletic and adventurous pursuits, you know, and be sure to uh, share the podcast with a friend rate review on iTunes, Google play, wherever you happen to listen to it. You can find us on Instagram at becoming human podcast us. Who is us and me, <laughs> just me. I hope you guys have a wonderful time, and I hope you guys' summer was great. Bring in the 
knife and the truth that doesn't hurt it spelled out right but it's just too easy to give up the fact to just place the blame scream the name on the crook of finger it's all the same it's just a dirty little game we keep playing all the dirty little lies and the dirty little brains and it's all to maintain when we're locked away time to open up the door and come out to play because the sun's in the sky and it's a beautiful day Sometimes, but you gotta decide. 